2: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
3: Hey! Hey, Mrs. Wade!
4: My name is Sidney uh, Jenkins. Come on, let's go inside, here, Marlo. We want on. to talk to you. Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I ask the question. Yeah,
3: yeah, that's right. And it happens every day. Right profile. Right profile. Sit, down. Sit down. What the hell are you doing here?
5: Yeah, that's right. I'm going to really this Swan. Swan. How are you?
3: When some passerby invites your eye to come her
0: way. there gonna be a lot of people looking for me as a result of my lovely wife. If it was a murderer, he murdered his wife. That's a lie. I know he didn't kill her. He can so, not A minor crime, a minor crime of misdemeanor to kill your wife. The major crime is he stole my money. Your friend stole my money, and the penalty for that is capital punishment.
3: Even as she smiles, a quick hello, you let her go.
0: I like your face too. Could you find my husband for me, please, Mr. Mahler?
3: You let the moment
0: fly
3: I'm a man cannot stand confinement Who
4: the hell are you? Well, I'm this here private investigator who was sent here this afternoon to uh, find you Did you come here to see me or my wife?
3: It's not his business!
4: Write the check, Roger What
1: check?
0: Write the check, Roger Whoa!
3: Lady, <laughs> you turn your head you know you said Long goodbye Level air, you're a born loser What do you think, Mabel?
0: Ow! If you have any trouble, I'll back you up I have fresh
3: evidence now For you to reopen the Terry Lennox case You ever think about suicide, Marlboro? Me? I don't believe in it <laughs> Don't you try to be nice to me now I'm leaving and it's goodbye I ain't running after you in the rain when you're catching a plane no more goodbye 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 I'm through I'm through this time and I'm
5: here Welcome to the projection booth I'm your host Mike White joining me is Mr. Terry Frost Hello Also with me is Mr. Eric Cohen Good to be here this week we are discussing Robert Altman's 1973 film, The Long Goodbye, adapted by Lee Brackett, one of the two main writers from Howard Hawks's The Big Sleep. The film stars Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe, a man now out of time with his world. We've now gone from the first Marlowe book, The Big Sleep, to the last one, The Long Goodbye. No, I take that back. It's not the, la- the last book. There are more after this. The two books were separated by 14 years just as The Big Sleep movie and The Long Goodbye movie were separated by twice that amount of time. In other words, we're seeing different aspects of time being reflected in each of these works. And yes, we'll be spoiling every damned one of them. So if you haven't seen The Long Goodbye, please proceed with caution. Now, Eric, when was the first time you saw The Long Goodbye and what did you think?
2: First time I saw Long Goodbye I was in college. I think we screened it in film school. And I remember really, really liking it a lot. Uh, as I got older, I became a Robert Altman fan in general. For the longest time, my favorite Robert Altman films were Nashville and The and Mrs. Miller. And then I rewatched, uh, The Long Goodbye fairly recently. It was about maybe a little over four years ago. Uh, we were actually discussing, we, in the Cinephiles, the program I used to co-host, we did a neo-noir episode. And one of the films we discussed was that. So I rewatched it and just fell in love with it. I absolutely adore this movie. This might become my favorite Robert Altman movie. How about you, Terry? I think I first saw it in the cinema, and the
6: two main acts of violence blew me away. It was kind of low-key, as the movie is, and there are a couple of acts of violence in there that really blew me away. I thought, yeah, this is great. A movie surprised me, and I love that. I've watched it again a few times since then. And I just keep seeing little bits of extra stuff that every time I watch it, which is a, a real value when you're watching a movie, is spending your time watching it. But little bits and pieces jump out at you that you weren't previously aware of, and that's always a sign of a good movie.
5: Yeah, I don't remember being that much of a Robert Altman fan, maybe until I saw this film. Like I grew up watching MASH, the TV show, so watching MASH, the movie, when I was younger was a little bit disconcerting because it's like, whoa, these are different people playing some of my favorite characters. And then I can't remember what my other Altman's were, other than going to see Popeye on uh, Pat Gilhul's 10th birthday or whatever. Otherwise, I really wasn't that big of an Altman fan, but I fell in love with this movie the first time I saw it. And I loved Marty Augustine. I loved the scene with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just everything got so crazy. But to your point, Terry, there are these moments of darkness and violence that are will take your breath away and leave this cloud hanging over the movie where you never know when that next moment of violence might come or if it will come. And it leaves you in this state of tension. And then Elliot Gould... His performance is so spectacular. I mean, we've talked about three very different incarnations of Marlowe. A lot of people had a lot of problems with this incarnation, but for me, this is one of the three main ones. There, there's a reason why we pick these three movies because, to me, these are the three aspects of Marlowe that really capture the character. While rewatching this one recently, because I've I've watched this movie. I don't know how many times this week I've watched the Japanese TV version of it, been listening to the audio book. I've been reading about this movie. So lots of thoughts bouncing around in my head. And I noticed in this adaptation, there's no patriarch. And it's really kind of interesting because in the last two movies that we've talked about, there's always been a real patriarchal role to this. And in this movie, we have that upper crust that we've talked about before, but we don't necessarily have that person sitting on his throne or in his wheelchair or any of those things. We don't have a General Sternwood. We don't have that character there, though he's in the book. But I think it was very smart the way that they eliminated that character from this. And at times, Roger Wade, the character played by Sterling Hayden, seems like he could be that role, but he's so unstable. And that's the thing with so many of these characters is they're so unstable.
6: Yeah, I think that uh there are the failed patriarchs in this movie. Of course, there's Roger Wade, Sterling Hayden's character. There's Marty Augustine who's running the criminal gang but seems to need to justify everything he does to everybody he talks to. So he's not particularly a strong character in that way. And then you've got Dr. Veringer played by Henry Gibson who's trying to control his patients so he can milk them for money. So what you've got is like
2: failed authority figures all through this movie. We talked about the moments of violence and how that that has a cloud over the film. I think it's interesting how Altman presents characters that, when they're introduced, they seem kind of almost buffoonish, uh, almost comical characters. Like when we first see the great Henry Gibson, you know, member of, like, Altman's repertory, right? It's almost comical, almost slapsticky in how he tries to, like, keep up with Marlowe and try to figure out who the hell is this guy. Why is he asking for Wade, Right. Both he and Augustine are introduced somewhat comically, and yet it's this thing where they go from being, like, these seemingly, these, these like, goofy kind of harmless, almost comical versions of what these characters would be in real life to being potent threats with just a snap of a finger. And there's a lot of duality in this film, like, a lot of characters who you think are just all, you know, silly kind of, you know, Southern California mistress type who... May have approved of murdering somebody, you know, uh, you got Henry Gibson, who's kind of this goofy kind of like scam psychiatrist one moment who threatens this man three times his size into giving his, giving him his money. And then you have Marty Augustine, who one moment is this kind of goofy parody of a gangster, suddenly, you know, inflicts one of the most, you know, jarring moments of violence in the whole film.
5: And there's also a real thing about masculinity in here. I mean, we've got, you know, Marty Augustine stripping down to his underwear. He talks about how he stripped down naked in front of his girlfriend to apologize, or sorry, his mistress to apologize about that act of violence. We have the whole questioning whether Marlowe is gay by the police and the whole thing about, you know, do you spell that with an E on the end, which is really kind of strange. And then we have, uh, Wade, who should be, I mean, Sterling Hayden, this mountain of a man who does get slapped in the face by little Henry Gibson. Just one of the most, you know, memorable scenes of the film for me is when that little guy reaches up and slaps Roger across the face. And then Roger Wade is, he's impotent. He was cuckolded. I mean, there are so many things where this major figure who should be this bastion of masculinity is just completely crippled throughout the entire film sterling hayden i looked into his background a bit
6: he was in the oss during world war ii so he had nothing to prove as a person and one of the things i liked about him is the vulnerability he shows in this uh according to some people hayden was pretty much drunk and stoned for most of the movie but he still gives a really interesting and kind of nuanced performance in this i I liked him in this one
2: Oh, he's fantastic in this, and it's sort of candy casting because, you know, he was the star of The Killing, you know, in the Asphalt Jungle. So he was sort of an alumni of, of, of film noir, of classic film noir. But he wasn't originally cast in that part. It was Dan Blocker, the guy who played Haas Cartwright in Bonanza, and he died just before they started shooting. So I believe uh, Sterling Hayden was, was Elliot Gould's suggestion. Dan Blocker would have been an
6: interesting choice. He played a gangster or something like that in one of the Tony Roe movies with Sinatra and uh, got a good performance in that. So it would have been interesting to see Dan Block's interpretation of Wade, which would have been very different, of course, from Sterling Hayden's, but no less deep because I think he had chops as an actor, which is a stereotyping of Vanessa never gave him a chance to really look at
5: Though he was fantastic in Mananza, and I always enjoyed his character as one of the, I mean, I didn't really care about Adam or Little Joe. To me, it was all about Hoss. I mean, it could have spun off to the Hoss show. I would have been fine. Maybe occasional appearances by Pa or Hopsing, but really it was the Hoss show for me.
2: Well, I think the most interesting casting in this film, actually one of the two most, two interesting cast choices in this is, is, uh, New York Yankees pitcher. God, I'm blanking on his name now. He plays Terry Lennox. Jim Booten. Yeah, Booten. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, why? But it works. I would have liked to seen somebody
6: else. I think he's kind of the, the one weak spot in this one. His character doesn't have any nuance and we don't understand why he and Marlowe are friends apart from their kind of early association when he had a different name. You don't get that kind of rapport that would have really made that relationship work, which would have then informed the last scene of the movie or the, almost the last scene of the
2: movie a lot better than it does but he does that Alman does that a lot where he kind of likes to mix up non-actors with real actors i noticed what you were talking about uh terry at the end of the film when uh terry lennox is explaining basically his whole story motivation everything when they're in mexico to marlo and it's almost like elliot gould and jim bootin botan they're it's almost like they're in two different movies I keep asking myself, who is Elliot Gould acting against whenever we see the camera on Elliot Gould? Because it's two distinct styles. I think it worked. I think their dynamic works better in the opening scene. Because it's just, it's very laid back. It's very like, okay, these are how guys kind of like, you know, talk to each other, you know, when they're friends and stuff like that. Um, and it didn't require any heavy emoting on, on, uh, his part. But, the last scene I, I did i did recognize some of the the uh the flaw there a little bit but it did, it didn't take me out of the film. I see your point there, yeah. What's
5: well, interesting that we do see one of the first times we see Terry Lennox the Jim Bolton character he's pulling on these gloves and it looks like he's got blood on his hands and so you're just immediately suspicious of him and Marlowe throughout this entire movie, is convinced that Terry Lennox is innocent. And it isn't until right towards the end of the movie when he seems to finally come to the realization that Terry Lennox is not innocent. So it really puts Marlowe in an interesting position that, again, talking about having your yourself undercut, he is defending Lennox and looking for solutions to prove that Lennox is innocent throughout this entire film. And he's wrong. Our main character is wrong through this entire film, which is really something to take that inflappable Marlowe character. And yeah, we've talked about how Marlow will like throw out theories. You know, I'm just trying it on for size kind of thing. He'll throw out different theories. He'll make different mixes and matches and those kind of things, but he's usually on top of stuff. And he's usually pretty good when it comes to putting the pieces together. And in this, he's so blinded by that friendship that he can't see the forest for the trees. He can't put those pieces together. And not only is he wrong about Terry murdering his wife, Sylvia, But you also have Marlowe not figuring out that Terry is alive until right towards the end of the movie either. So it's kind of interesting that our character is so flawed from the beginning. And we can kind of talk, too, about the way that this character was portrayed as being a man out of time, as I talked about in the intro, because – He, you know, we, the first time we see him, he's being woken up by his cat and it's as if he was asleep since 1948. You know, he drives this 48 Pontiac. It's like he was asleep from the time that the big sleep was written in 1953 and then is waking up 20 years later and oh, how the world has changed.
6: One of the things about Gould's interpretation of Marlowe is that he's alert and on the ball when he's on the job. But when he's kind of out in the world going to supermarkets at three in the morning or doing anything not directly related to his work he's kind of just sleepwalking through it It's like he doesn't engage with the twentieth century late twentieth century world he finds himself in but when he's talking and asking questions of suspects and and clients he's very much focused on that, but at other times he's just cut off from everything else around him
2: what I like about um what what they do with this interpretation of Marlowe, they do this thing where it's kind of a riff on the voiceover narration, first person narration. We kind of learn to so- associate with the film noir genre, but instead, it's it's replaced by uh Marlowe constantly m- murmuring to himself, which which kind of supplies that kind of like narration that we've seen in like earlier films, and it's 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 very amusing. He just, I I love the presentation of Philip Marlowe in this. I watched this film, I'm thinking, gosh, I don't know what to compare Elliot Gould's uh, interpretation to. He's kind of like, if Jerry Lewis's uh, buddy love wasn't so put together, mixed with a little bit of Marx Brothers, that's kind of... This Marlow, but then there's other stuff there and, and it's just such an interesting interpretation. And, 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 and this particular Marlow is just lost. He's confused and he's just amused by everything around him. But at the same time, he just doesn't understand it. And he's just kind of resorted to just talking to himself and amusing himself with
5: his own thoughts. It's like he wants to be Lieutenant Columbo, but he hasn't quite put it together yet. I mentioned Popeye earlier and it kind of reminds me of Popeye, the way that Popeye talks to himself all the time and is giving a narrative around him, you know, commenting on people, but he's doing it all under his breath and muttering. And that's so much like this Philip Marlowe when he's walking away from those girls across the way and he's just like, bunch kind and regular kind.
3: Mr. Marlowe, you're the nicest neighbor we ever had.
5: Gotta be the nicest neighbor. I'm a private eye. It's okay with me. This guy is just always talking, and even when he's, you know, interacting with other people, he seems to keep that running dialogue, especially when he's being questioned by the police. Sit down. I'll let dirty up my joints.
1: Sit down right here. I. What's your name now my name, my, yeah. name. Oh, you, my name is Marlo. Oh, fuck.
5: I'm What's your
0: name? My name is Marlo. Really hey, yeah. yeah, hey, he's a real cute body
4: toy.
0: Yeah,
4: he's a smartass. That's what he you is. Know, I, that's what I meant. Well, why don't you learn to say what you mean? He's a real smart ass lieutenant. Hi, boys.
0: Who's in there? The, uh, Jane Gahooper's in there. Sure, we're all peeking through. We got your own American activities. Yeah, I Sure. All right, look. With an E. You got an E, I got an e Is that a... That sounds like a fag. Huh? Fag? Is that what you are?
1: Well, I'm a fag, but you I don't know need. Any, anybody with Philip marlowe has
0: got to be a fan. It sounds like an extra Academy fag. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere
4: What are you here for? Tomorrow? Well, I'm here because i am get ready for the big game Saturday. You know, we're playing Notre Dame, and I hope I catch a touchdown pass. So now I'm going to be... At I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just getting into my makeup. Well, fags makeup. i that's, uh, that's You got a banjo. i do my Al Jones. Sure. This guy uh, uh, sounds like uh, anybody. i doing dirty work. Uh, uh, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah, that's
0: what I like. I'm going to a thing, Swanee. Swanee.
3: How was it? Sure, I got Al Jones. Uh, uh, he was okay. Damn right he was hard. But here's what right. i here. What the hell are we doing
0: you now you don't you look like prep school, but
5: that's not And the way that that shot, the whole thing of him in the booth and then the cops outside, and the way that the one black cop is talking to the white cop through the mirror, though he he knows that the other guy can't hear him, but the way he's calling him like a honky son of a bitch, it's just like that's so nice because we we do have a lot. When it comes to race and class, when it comes to this film, as we did with the other films as well, you know, there's no Orientalism in here, but we do have Mexico as being this foreign land, and that really comes into play as far as you know, the rules don't apply here in Mexico as they do in the states. Yeah, I think we've also got to do
6: uh, just to get back to uh, his initial scenes. We've got to give a shout out to an actor called Ken Sanson who does a terrific. Bar Stanwick impersonation as the guard to the Malibu Colony, and then he does Walter Brennan and Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart as well. Like
2: um, those that, kind of moments of lightness really do carry us through that part of the narrative nicely. I love the subversiveness to how he subverts like the, the sort of tropes we associate not just with uh, private detective flicks, but also specifically with Philip Marlowe uh, flicks. There's always that sort of elijah cook jr character kind of following marlo around kind of thing and here you have that character played by this very dim-witted sort of wannabe wise guy that that you know ellie gould's marlo just doesn't even bother trying to like shake shake off his trail he just walks up to him gives him the address this is where i'm going in case you lose me <laughs> you know
5: yeah i kind of wondered where that guy came from it felt like there was more to that relationship at times. And that's the thing with this movie is at times it feels like it's just being kind of held together more by momentum than other things. I've read about, you know, we've heard like, uh, oh yeah, there's supposed to be an opening bit with Philip Marlowe going to an office building where there was Sam Spade and these other private detectives working. And that, I don't think ever really made it into the final cut, but there were other things that i read about like, Oh yeah, there's supposed to be more of a connecting scene between this and that and this other piece and this other piece. And then Altman cut them out right at the last minute. And it's like, okay, I can kind of see that. Cause there are times where I'm just like, I'm not really sure how he just got from, you know, point L to point N. So where's M in the middle of this, but it works. It all works for me. It, it, it almost adds to that dream-like nature of this movie. is just, we're there with Marlowe on that sleepwalk.
6: There's some rumors around that Steve McQueen was going to do a cameo playing Sammy Spade in a scene with Marlowe.
5: I heard he just showed up on set that day, but I wasn't sure.
6: Yeah, I'm, I'm not certain myself, but uh, a Steve McQueen cameo might have taken us out of the movie, I think, because he was an enormous star at the time. And to have him pop in there playing another character – would have reminded us of a movie and taken us out of the kind of journey we're on.
5: And we talked about the way that we're mixing these different actors together to make this wonderful stew. I was very impressed with Nina Van Pallant's role. I thought that she did an interesting job of it. I don't know if she was great or good, but she definitely held my interest because... I couldn't necessarily ever figure her out. And I think that's the perfect kind of femme fatale role where you never really know where they're coming from. They really took her role in the, from the book to a whole different place. You know, like she didn't murder Sylvia Lennox. She doesn't murder Roger Wade. She's complicit in the crime because she and Terry are still together, but she went from a real femme fatale to just somebody who shouldn't be doing the things that she's doing, not necessarily having blood directly on her hands.
2: Well, she's perfectly cast in the sense that she's that, you know, early 70s Southern California trophy wife or mistress or girlfriend or whatever. You know, she had some notoriety as the mistress of what's his name, the hoaxer uh, novelist Clifford Irving. Right. There's her Jim Booten, you know, uh, among other people mixed in with, you know, uh, Elliot Gould, Henry Gibson, uh, well, Mark Rydell is another very interesting casting choice. I mean, this is a guy who directed on Golden Pond. He was a filmmaker. And I got the sense that Altman just like cast, I mean, that's why I have a, this is my theory, uh, Don Blocker was really, originally cast on the Wade part because they were probably friends. Altman directed a lot of television before he got into film. He probably directed episodes of Bonanza. And he was very, uh, at the time, um, Gould was, like, in disfavor for the production studios. He hadn't worked for two years, and it was Altman that really wanted Elliot Gould to play Marlowe. So he you got the sense that Altman's, like, this loyal guy that likes working with certain people, you know, are part of his circle. And, uh, you know, Henry Gibson is the best example of that, because he's, like, in almost all of Altman's movies, right? I, I, I thought that, that Nina Van Pallant was, was interested in casting. She kind of fit that kind of niche persona that Altman was going for in this take on Philip Marlowe story.
6: Yeah, and Mark Ryder worked with Elliot Gould later as well. He's directed Harry
5: M. Walton's Go to New York. yeah. So obviously they liked working with each other. I don't know if it was Altman himself who picked up um, on Gould, or if it was David Picker who decided on Gould, because this movie... It went through a lot of stuff before it finally came to Altman. I think it started as a project in 68, and Sterling Siliphant wrote the screenplay for it. And then through a series of a couple different directors, they managed to get Lee Brackett, and she rewrote the script. I think that she did a wonderful job. It was really interesting. I went to the University of Michigan gosh, a couple of years ago now and look through the Altman archives and reading the very first draft of the script, which I don't think everybody, anybody's ever written about this. Uh, it wasn't a Philip Marlowe story. They changed, uh, she changed the name to John Carmody, which was another character that, uh, Chandler had written about, and then, for whatever reason, like, Terry Lennox was Terry Lennox, Marty Augustine was Marty Augustine, was Mendy Menendez in the book. All of these characters were there, and there were additional characters, of course, like the Linda Loring character. I can't, I think she was Kate Loring or something like that in the screenplay. But, yeah, it was a John Carmody uh, mystery at first, and then they switched it to Philip Marlowe in the second draft. So I don't know if there was some sort of rights thing going on or why that was, but I found that very interesting. Yeah. I was just wondering whether they delayed, uh, the making the lead bracket
6: script at the time, because in 69, we had the Marlowe with James Garner in it. So maybe they didn't want to put two into production at the same time. Maybe there was a kind of
5: overlap there that delayed it. I think so. Sterling Siliphant wrote the Marlowe in 68. Uh, yes, he did. So it seems like it would have been a two picture deal there. And then we talked a little bit last week as far as the two producers, Jerry Bick and Elliot Kastner, who bought the cinema, the rights to The Long Goodbye and then eventually brought us The Big Sleep and Farewell My Lovely as well. So, uh Yeah, I don't know how all that happened and why there was this revival of Chandler in the late 60s, early 70s, but I'm glad that it happened. And, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other detective movies that were coming out around the same time because there were some interesting parallels. I read a really nice review comparing and contrasting this one with Chinatown, and this one predates Chinatown by a year, I think. But there are some interesting parallels I was really glad to see Jerry Jones in here, who is one of the two detectives that pick up Marlowe from the uh, apartment. Because Jerry Jones, I didn't recognize him by face, but I recognized him by voice because he gives a very studious lecture in The Avenging Disco Godfather about the negative effects of angel dust. So as soon as I heard his voice, I was like, that's the guy from Disco Godfather. So sure enough, it was. I was very happy about that. Is that the guy that, that's one of
2: my favorite scenes in the movie is, is when they're in his apartment. And is that the, is that the detective that goes, what is this? And Marla goes, they're baby shoes. And he just has this express, like the camera just stays on his face. Pretty bloody big too. They're they're, really, they're more like
6: kid shoes. Yeah. Oh, they're huge. Maybe Marla had enormous feet when he was a child. Yeah.
5: Yeah. That whole preamble of the cat before we even get to Terry Lennox. I mean, it took a lot of guts to do the whole cat intro, and it really does a great job of introducing us to this character and what he's all about and how far he'll go for a friend, you know, going out at three o'clock in the morning, trying to find curry brand cat food. And I love that he gets introduced to that, um, black, uh, stalker at the market and that he comes back later on. What I need a cat for, I got a girl. Right. <laughs> and I
2: love he shows up. Hey, how's your cat? How's your girl? <laughs> yeah, I love that scene. I love, love, love that scene. And, and that was pilfered by the Cohen brothers for Big Lebowski for when, uh, when, uh, what's his name? Jeff Bridges was looking for milk.
5: I know some people have compared The Big Sleep with The Big Lebowski, but I know we talked more um two weeks ago on Murder, My Sweet about The Big Lebowski than we did last week when we were talking about The Big Sleep. And yeah, as I was watching this one this week, I was just like, yeah, there's a lot of The Big Lebowski in here. And I can really see, especially some of these crazy characters. I mean, Marty Augustine, he would really fit well in a Coen Brothers movie. And Rydell's great in that part. Hilarious one moment, frightening the
2: next. And that second time when, when he visits, when he goes to Augustine's apartment or house or wherever he's at, and he brings out his mistress again, you're just waiting for something bad to happen.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Gould is crawling up the wall, like, I got it. I got it.
6: <laughs> yeah. This is one of the things that pissed me off about the movie. There weren't many, but this is one. The fact that uh, um, Marlo doesn't really give a shit about the girl. He kind of offers her a cigarette. But from our viewpoint, talking about abusive spouses and things like that in the 21st century, that just doesn't play right to me looking at it these days. It may well have done in 73, But there's something slightly off about that because Marlowe is a kind of knight without armor, as written. And that's one bit where he
2: kind of fails in that mission. Well, there's a lot in this that Marlowe, does things that the literary Marlowe would not do, and I always read that as intentional. Especially when we get to the very final scene, that is when essentially not something Marlowe would do. He shoots his friend. He he kills him at the end of the film. You know, having seen this film so many times now, I rewatched it again this this morning just prepare for this podcast. Ellie Gould's Marlowe with all his you know fuddling about and you know mur- muttering to himself and seemingly confused there is this like bomb ready to go off you know and so he sees these things he saw how wade uh inadvertently hits uh his wife you know when in his drunken thing he he sees uh the violence inflicted by Augustine on his mistress and all that stuff and Finally, he just lets it all out on his friend. The one friend he has, Terry Lennox, the guy who betrayed him, that's who he like lets out his form of violence on. And I saw that as sort of his release.
5: It almost feels like more of a like a Peckinpah film at that moment than a uh, Raymond Chandler movie. You know, and the other thing is you don't actually see any kind of
6: wound in Terry Lennox as he falls back into the pool. So there's not that kind of Peckinpah style of ultraviolence. You just see him fall back in an old-school 1940s way without a bullet hole. And uh, that, that's kind of an interesting choice there as well. I did learn a lesson from watching the start of this movie, is you never try to give a cat cream cheese with an egg in it. The cat's not going okay to accept <laughs>
1: Nine Lives presents Morris.
0: The castle's almost finished, your majesty.
5: Good. Reserve the dungeon for yourself.
0: Here's the
4: enchanted tower.
5: This is her second childhood today.
4: Hungry, Morris? Lower the drawbridge. I'm leaving.
3: Don't be finicky. There's nine lives.
4: Hark! The sea winds bring a message.
3: Liver and chicken. Savory
4: stew. Nine lives savory stew. Mm.
1: Nine lives. Nutritious foods cats really like. Even Morris. Only fit for a king,
5: nine lives. You can watch this movie just for the animal roles. You know, we talked a little bit on Murder My Sweet when it came to, you know, Moose Malloy and the way that Marlowe was comparing himself to a bird often. And, uh, with this one, I mean, the whole cat going out the door that says, you know, El Puerto de Gato, it's just like, okay, yeah, it's very, Escaping to Mexico kind of thing. All right. And then all of the dogs, the dogs at the Wade residence, the dogs that are fucking in the streets in Mexico, all that stuff. It's just like, and I think they even recognize it. I can't remember if it was Pauline Kale or who wrote that, you know, it will give people, uh, the ability to write term papers about this movie later on when they just look at the dog and cat roles to this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can kind of see that. Uh, yeah, you got it all the way to mexico you film a scene in a movie and get upstaged
6: by a pair of dogs fucking
2: yeah there's a dog there's the wade's dog that's constantly uh after after marlo as well the camera's always sort of pointed at animals in
5: this film well that roaming camera is just fantastic like it is not still through 99 percent of this movie it is always going someplace and reminding us what voyeur we are and what a voyeur our main character is trying to solve this kind of stuff and I was looking and trying to see things and then we have things of like the one uh, gangster that you are talking about earlier when he's using binoculars and looking at those girls up uh, across the way from Marlo's place and I love how Marlo never really seems to care about those half naked if not fully naked women that are right across the way he doesn't seem to pay them any mind goes out and gets their fudge brownie mix doesn't want any part of the brownies <laughs> or anything
2: <laughs> they hurt my teeth but yankee doodles on the other hand he's one for you mike do you realize one of those girls is a previous
6: podcast
5: guest i do Absolutely. yeah Retunia yeah. alda is yeah. one of those playing Retunia sweet in this movie
2: now she was one of the girls right because i saw her name attack because i i met her i shot a, a dvd extra i forgot what the film was that she was in that we shot it for, but yeah. I saw her name come up late. Who does she play in this film? The mistress? The who did she play? I, I couldn't figure that out, but it's one of the girls in a across the street or across the uh across from him. Interesting. Getting back to how it's shot, Vilma Sigmund does a phenomenal job of the cinematography. It's also a beautiful film to look at. They did some flashing, some which is a post production uh, term for taking the canister of film or the roll of film and, like, just exposing it to natural light really quickly and it's shutting it. And it gives it that sort of, like, almost L.A. postcard look to it, especially that scene where, where Marlo's chasing after, you know, shouting, Mrs. Wade, Mrs. Wade, as she's driving away. You know, just just the photography is just a phenomenal. Yeah, it's so much easier doing that stuff now. You just have to kind of use color grading and LUTs. Yep, or just a goddamn Instagram filter.
5: Yeah, you know, one thing I really picked up on this time watching it was the use of the fake names. Obviously Marlowe gives a couple of fake names. At one point he says he's Donald Duck. He says he's the name Sidney Jenkins. Uh, he gets called Marlboro constantly by uh, Roger Wade. But then to find out that both Roger Wade and Terry Lennox had fake names that Roger Wade was Billy Joe Smith and Terry Lennox was Lenny Potts. And we know from the book that Terry Lennox had a previous name of Paul Marston, which has the same initials as Philip Marlowe, but Roger Wade, I think, was always Roger Wade. But here, him having a former identity, you know, casts kind of a doubt on him, casts doubt on Terry Lennox, and then... It's almost like Marlowe's trying to get in on the game a little bit by pretending to be other people, too. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say, going back way back to when I was talking about having John Carmody in uh, as Philip Marlowe, that name is I think that was a very intentional thing because the first time Chandler turned in his manuscript for – the long goodbye. One of his editors said that Marlo is becoming too Christlike, and I think having a character, any character with the initials JC is always suspect as far as is this supposed to be. A-
0: hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free
1: Jumba. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: J-j-jumba.
1: Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A- analogous to
6: Jesus Christ. How come nobody's ever got an initial impo Muhammad or something like that or beef
5: for Buddha? Guess it's just the tyranny of Christianity, my friend. Yeah talking about the big lebowski the real reason why i was reminded of the big lebowski is because marty augustine is out on shabbos he doesn't roll on shabbos but now he has to come out and take care of this philip marlowe guy and he's doing it on shabbos man come on
1: saturday donny is shabbos the jewish day of rest. that means i don't work i
2: don't drive a car i don't fucking ride in a car i don't handle money i don't turn on the oven and i sure as shit
7: don't fucking roll Shabbos, Shabbos.
2: That's what's kind of really interesting about the screenplay uh, that, that they wound up working with. And, and a lot of it was also improvised. Like Altman let especially Gould and uh, Hayden improvise a lot. It's not a faithful adaptation of the novel at all. The novel's really convoluted, probably more convoluted than The Big Sleep. And yet, Lee Brackett kind of like just really stripped it and streamlined it and just... Took certain elements from, from the novel and kind of created this different animal. But there's still these like little like shout outs, references to the novel, novel, like, you know, Marty Augustine mentioning that he's doing, you know, he's working on the Shabbats, right? You know, he shouldn't be here doing this thing. I had to come out and do this thing, you know? Um, whereas in the novel, he doesn't work on the Shabbat, right? So it's like these little interesting kind of like throw, you know, it's like, like, like the filmmakers are reminding you, I know, this isn't faithful, but, we're just trying to prove to you, we have read the novel. It's not like we haven't. And is Augustine his real last name, or is it
6: like something like Liberwitz or something like that? So there could, there's another potential fake name as well,
5: because Augustine doesn't sound right. One other thing that reminded me of the Coen brothers, sorry to kind of harp on this, but is the song. The, the long goodbye song and the way that we have all of the, these different incarnations of the song to the point of in those opening credits, the way that we're cross cutting between Terry Lennox and uh, Philip Marlowe. And we have two different versions of the same song that are playing that are really at odds with one another. And it's, it's interesting that you can have two versions of the same song really fighting with each other in that part, you know? Um, but then the way that the song comes back as the funeral march, it comes back as the doorbell, it comes back as these things. It so reminds me of the Raising Arizona theme. Like when high is running away from the cops after he's robbed the quickie mart and he runs into the, um, the grocery store again with the grocery store. And it's suddenly the Muzak version of the Raising Arizona theme. So it's just, that's one of my favorite bits of that movie is the way that the song changes when he goes from place to place. And having that same thing, I really think that they ended up taking that from uh The Long Goodbye and that use of The Long Goodbye song, which I have to admit has been stuck in my head all frickin' week. So luckily, it's that version by the guy who did the Conjunction Junction song. So I've gotten it, got his jazzy interpretation of it.
2: The thing that, that I always thought was brilliant about that, yes, the fact that the entire soundtrack is made up of variations of that song, but I love how the movie starts off with the cliché classic noir version of that song. That 70s films, you know, all, all the 70s films that were like trying to do the film noir thing or harken back to like the Robert Mitchum, Philip Marlowe ones, uh, even Chinatown, have that kind of opening kind of jazzy score, sort of Mike Hammer kind of theme song. And then it cuts into this like Muzak version when he's in the supermarket. And I thought, I thought that was brilliant. Cause you, cause he, cause Altman kind of like plays with your a- anticipation of, Oh, is this going to be another seventies take on noir? Because you know, here it is a cliche music we associate with noir and then it becomes something entirely different. And I just love that.
6: I think it kind of gets used once or twice too often. It becomes a kind of, you know, he's made his point, but then he keeps doing it. Uh, for me, there was just one or two, d- too many the iterations of it in there.
5: It worked for me. I mean, even when they got to Mexico and they were doing the funeral dirge version of it, I was just like, "Okay, this works." But like I said, the danger is that it gets stuck in my head all week. That interaction he has with the coroner, and I guess he's supposed to be the
2: chief of the local police, that that's hilarious. That is very funny stuff where they're just falling over themselves trying to please him. And and, and he's just he's just just private dick from LA. And the whole scene, like, when he's in the car where he's trying to bribe them and he's trying to justify giving them the money and they keep turning it down, but they keep changing the story. And that's filmed beautifully,
6: too, with just the two hands and the $5,000 bill on the center console of the car. I mean, that's a nice choice there. I kind of like that. You didn't have to have any face acting from the actors. You just had to have the voices and their hands and a piece of money told the story.
5: Yeah, I always picture those three guys like in a sound booth somewhere recording that <laughs> because I don't think any of those guys were anywhere near that car. None of those hands were their hands. It just all felt like second unit stuff of like, oh shit, we need to do something here. Get these guys in a sound booth quick. But it worked. Yeah, oh, well, it totally worked. Did they have a Carradine cameo in the jail cell. Yes!
4: <laughs>
6: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just before-, before Kung Fu. David Carradine laying on a bloody sill in jail and having a chat with Marla. They've been hanging out for three days and they're really
2: bonded nicely. It's the most anti-David Carradine performance I think I've ever seen. I would say like, like I have, this is a weird kind of loopy, um, anecdote on my part. I'm sorry if this seems to be going way off track, but watching David Carradine in this reminds me of when I met the actor Scott Glenn. For, for the listeners who don't know, Scott Glenn is this great stoic, kind of like He-Man actor, kind of in a Clint Eastwood mode. He's been in so many films. Uh, he was in Silence of the Lambs. He was in, uh, you know, so many stuff. Anyways, uh, I worked on a show that Scott Glenn, uh, was an actor in and meeting him in person, he's, he's nothing like the roles he plays. He's very chatty. He's very loose. I would say he was like an aging hippie type. He was saying man a lot and very, you know, limber and loose and kind of animated and stuff like that. And seeing and seeing David Carradine in this kind of reminded me of my meeting Scott Glenn because David Carradine is nothing like the David Carradine in anything else. He's like just this chatterbox that just won't stop talking. Even even the the corrections officer that that tells Marlo he can leave is even telling him, you need to shut up, or otherwise your lips are going to fall off. Yeah, when um the the shout-out to the thin man where Mar- Marla calls the dog Asta,
6: kind of like that bit as well. There's these little Easter eggs during this movie, where they're just little bits of business that kind of work and remind, remind you of that thing that, yes, they are in Hollywood. And
2: the movie is bracketed by Hooray Ho- for Hollywood at the start oh, and the finish. The final shot is a, is a reverse gender-swap take on the third man. Mm-hmm.
5: I was just thinking about some of the other mishearings and misnamings of people. You know, I talked about how Wade calls him Marlborough, and then there's uh Dr. Derringer instead of Dr. Go so calling him by the name of a gun is interesting. And then that whole thing that you guys were just talking about with the, uh, the, the coroner and the, the head of police down in Otataklan and just all of those mishearings that happened, like where they, he's, Says I'm the coroner, but the way that he says it, it looks like colonel, or it sounds like colonel. And when he talks about the diseased instead of the deceased, I guess what reminded me of that too was just the uh, the subtitles were going nuts during this movie. The whoever did the subtitles for the DVD release didn't really understand what was being said sometimes. So since Marlowe has that cigarette in his mouth throughout almost this entire movie, I think he's one of the few characters that smokes, if the only character. And when he calls Asta, Asta, he's got that cigarette in his mouth. So the subtitler called, uh, caught Aster instead of Asta. And this was like, come on. And like, they screwed up the line when, uh, he says, "Your," uh, when Marty Augustine says to the one guy, your father was a moil. And I can't remember what he says, but it, it, like the subtitles was something like, you know, your father, wa- father was a mortal or something like that. And it's like, what? <laughs> I hope, I hope they didn't misspell albino turd. Watching it
6: this morning, I was going to count how many cigarettes Milo smoked during the movie, and I gave up about the time he and Terry Lennox got together for the first time because there are just so many cigarettes there, and then he, um, what we call here in Australia, the donkey roots one cigarette off the other and chain smokes them. This is not a an anti-smoking movie at all.
2: Well, what's funny about that is, I don't know what is funnier, the fact that he always has a cigarette in his mouth, or that everyone around him do- don't seem to care. It- it's like, it's like he just walk into any house, any room with a cigarette in his mouth, and everyone, anyone who's living there th- doesn't seem to be, like, phased by it. But no one else is smoking. Yeah, he's in hospital with a cigarette. No, that's probably the reason the guy gave him the harmonica to try to win you off
6: cigarettes. The guy who's t- Totally mummified in bandages, hands in that tiny harmonica for no, no reason. I think he just wants him to stop smoking.
2: That's brilliant. I never thought, I always thought the guy was trying to reach for the cigarette, and Marlowe misunderstood it, took his harmonica instead. But you know what? I like that interpretation better. I think it works. And I really like, um, the other thing that, that gets me, you know, kind of these details
6: hang in my head enormously when I watch a film, is Henry Gibson's enormous comb-over. It was reminiscent of something in recent political history, but I can't recall what.
5: I think that the cigarettes are supposed to be some sort of commentary on like the health consciousness of 1973 California everybody is tanned the women across the way are doing yoga doing aerobics all these kind of things and people other than drinking seem to be more health conscious than Marlowe is and Marlowe is that throwback you know he's got the old car he's got the cigarettes and everything he wears the suit he's one of the few people that wears a suit in this movie and the one thing I regret about the flashing that you talked about when it came to the look of the film, is that apparently his coat and pants were mismatched, and his tie had little American flags on it, and you can't see those after they did that effect to the movie. They look like they're the same color, but that would have been another thing to say, like, what a rumpled guy this is. I mean, he already looks rumpled. He already looks like he needs a shave in a lot of the scenes, which I think is kind of like natural Elliot Gouldness, but they really played up that he's kind of this shabby detective shabby chic, as it were. No, that kind of worked for me. I mean, the
6: tie thing, even just going out to the supermarket wearing a tie at three in the morning, I'm lucky if I wear pants going out to the supermarket at three in the morning. Uh, But him,
2: he kind of did the full dressing up bit.
5: And he's so concerned about that tie when he goes in to save Roger. He's like, here, hold my tie.
2: We talked about this with uh, The Big Sleep, the Robert Mitchum version. And I mentioned how that take on Marlowe was too put together, too slick. He had too nice a car. And this version, it's the complete antithesis to that. He has a vintage car, but it's junk. He's dressing in a, he's dressed in a suit, but it's completely rumpled. He probably sleeps in that damn suit. And more than any of the other, uh, Marlowe incarnations, I really feel like I can smell the smoke and the BO on you know Elliot Gould's take on the character cuz he just he, he he just seems like he hasn't slept he seems like he was in prison for in a prison cell for like 3 days or however many days it was he was in there you know the guy just never seems fully
5: clean or or hygienically all there yeah that he's sleeping in his clothes when we first see him and getting woken up by that cat it's just like yeah how long has this guy been laying there and when was the last time he showered
6: it's probably good that he went for that dip in the ocean though In that case, yeah, clean you up a little bit. But uh, I kind of, I kind of like that scene. um, Wade's scene where he wades into the ocean. Wade, Wade. There's a chaos to that that kind of plays naturalistically. So when people are actually drowning or where there's any kind of crisis like that, it does play that way. With you know, you don't realize quite what's happening, then you realize what's happening, and then there's a delay while you get stuff done. It, It played realistically to an unusual degree during that scene. I kind of appreciated that.
5: No, I like that a lot. And I like that whole thing of the dog holding the cane at the end of that is really nice. Mm. Yeah, it really did work. At one point, it feels like Marlo loses his car. Like I know Marlo gets driven around a lot in the books and in the movies as far as, you know, getting picked up by people and being taken to places, being taken to the Malibu colony, being taken to Marty Augustine's place, but I was curious why he takes the bus down to Mexico rather than driving himself down there. I have to admit that I have no knowledge of California geography at all because it feels like you can go from Los Angeles to Tijuana or to Mexico really fast. Uh, I thought that was a little farther than going there, but I have no idea.
6: Two and a half hours or so. I've taken the
5: train. I've taken the train
6: from LA to San Diego. And then I went over to Water on a bus. So, yeah, two and a half an hours on a freeway sounds about right. Two and a half to three hours, yeah. Yeah, I never understood why
2: he took a bus either.
5: Because, yeah, at one point he seems to just kind of lose his car. Like the way that he chases her on foot through the streets and everything, I, I realized he was probably taken to Augustine's and then sees her come out with the money. And it took me a long time to put that together that she dropped off the money. I don't know why it took me that long. I guess I was just staring at Arnold Schwarzenegger's impressive pectoral muscles at that point. Yeah, and then him chasing her. And it was interesting when I thought about it this time when he gets hit by the car and he blacks out. It's kind of like that black pool opening at his feet. You know, he has to get knocked unconscious at least once during these movies. It's a good way from getting from one scene to another. But uh, one thing I thought about Arnold Schwarzenegger
6: in that movie, he should never have a mustache. It really doesn't suit him. The mustache didn't work. Um, yeah, it's it's an odd one. You go, okay, well, we'll get the Austrian guy in, but we won't let him talk.
5: Which would have fit, though, with Marty's gang. The whole thing of Marty having all the different ethnicities working for him, I found very interesting. And I really like the guy is a Pepe who's like, Marty, I don't want to take off my shirt. I got too many scars. <laughs>
2: Okay. I, I love how Augustine is so considerate about it. He's like, okay, you go in another room. Just, you know.
6: <laughs> yeah, well, forget the scars you put on your girlfriend's face, but, you know, you're okay. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Again, going back to the screenplay, I am really glad that they cut down on the amount of characters. I'm glad that they cut down on. I know this is going to be a little sacrilegious for me to say this, but I feel like The Long Goodbye was an overwritten book. Like, listening to it. It feels like it takes him three or four pages to just cross the room sometimes, and it's just like, come on, dude, just get there. And I kind of miss that rat-a-tat patter and the really quick-clipped prose of the more hard-boiled novels. And there are times – like, the way that he finds Dr. Veringer is pretty easy in this movie. It's not that easy in the book. Uh, but what's even worse is that once he goes to visit Beringer, he has two other Dr. V's that he can look for. And he goes and visits at least one other one. It's just like, come on, dude, we didn't need this scene in here whatsoever. Just. Cut right to the chase, get back to this guy. You know, this is the guy, like even listening to the, the book that I was doing. I was like, no, this, he's got to be the guy. He has to be the guy. And then when he got, when Marlo goes and investigates another doctor, I was just like, wow, we're really just getting away from the plot here. And that weird crisscrossing of the Sylvia Lennox was sleeping with Roger Wade and then Terry was sleeping with Eileen, but in some versions, some characters don't sleep with one another, and in other versions, they do. So depending on if you're reading the book, some of the early drafts of the screenplay, or watching the movie, all of that stuff changes. I know Chandler at one point said to his publishers, this mystery seems like it's fairly obvious. And I don't think it is. I really don't think it is, because Even reading the book, I'm like, well, I'm not sure exactly what this person's motivation was for this, that, or the other thing. And definitely when watching this movie, it leaves a lot of questions, but I'm kind of glad it does leave questions. I think everything is kind of summed up in the end, and I think it was smarter to have Roger kill himself rather than being the victim of a murder, just keeping it to – the one murder at the beginning and then the revenge at the end, I think was a lot smarter than all the convolutions that they were doing and keep some of these other characters out in the mix.
2: I totally agree with you, Mike. I, like I said earlier, the novels. With
0: lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered
1: here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? No necessary. prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Too convoluted for its own good. There's just way too many things going on. I mean, like even like the Terry Lennox reveal. I mean, he's 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 undergone plastic surgery, right, to look like a Mexican. It's just it's just it gets a little ludicrous for for Ch- even Chandler's you know uh, thing and. My understanding of this is that, you know, Chander also wrote the novel during a very difficult time in his life. I think his wife was dying. I think he mentioned that this was a very personal book for him. Uh, if that was the case, I wish he just focused on the characters and not tried to make such a convoluted mystery. Because I think Lee Brackett and, and Robert Altman together crafted something far more streamlined and just far more effective story-wise. I mean, there's 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 no complications. We we understand the story as it unfolds, uh, and when we get the reveal at the end, it's almost an afterthought because what it's really about is how you know Marla was not a step ahead of everybody and how that affects him. And is
6: going on this kind of not necessarily revenge thing, but trying to understand Terry Lennox's death, which is the main engine for him apart from money people throw at him, is to understand the circumstances around which his friend. Went to Mexico and died, and then it becomes something else entirely during that process. So, um, that's a, that's a clean through line where we think it's yeah, he's going to try, we're going to find out that Terry Lennox was killed by one of the characters, and Marlo's going to get revenge. That's that's the first thought I had when I first saw the film, and again, it, it turns into something else, but it's a very clean. Uh, motivation for the main character apart from the money, because in a lot of detective novels, the motivation starts out as the money and then becomes something else. And this one does that as well to a certain extent. But we it's a very kind of personal story for Marlowe. And I think that this movie conveys that, even if the Terry Lennox character is kind of weakly acted.
5: The other thing that I just thought about is the way that when Marlowe finally manages to get a "quote unquote" confession out of the uh, Eileen Wade character, that when he goes to the cops and says, "I want this case reopened, and I want this to you know, I have new evidence, and here's what's happening," and they're like, "Yeah, we know, we know all this." So again, the cops are further ahead in this mystery than Marlowe is. He again is a very ineffective detective in this movie, and. I also appreciate, you know, we're talking about how Gould plays his character a lot differently, is that when he is yelling and screaming at the cops, the way that he's walking away from them yelling, you know, you would never think that (laughs) Humphrey Bogart would drop a motherfucker on the cops, but sure enough, this version of Marlowe does, which I kind of appreciate it. What I
2: love about that moment, again, I go back to what I said before about how how the filmmakers, even though we're not making the long goodbye, we're showing you that we have read the book. They're also, they have a firm understanding of who Marlowe is and what he does, and then they subvert it. Uh, you know, there's this thing, there's this through line in all the books where Marlowe likes to get his subjects drunk so he can get more information out of them, right? And there's a scene where he sits down and agrees to have a drink with, with Wade. And he encourages more drink, you know, so that he can get more information from Wade, right, when they're sitting out, you know, on his porch. And then we have a, sort of a parallel scene, that moment where he's yelling at the cops and all that stuff. You know, he's gotten, you know, you could argue, I don't know if he personally got her drunk, but 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 she's been drinking, uh, Mrs. Wade. And she reveals her take on everything to, uh, to, to uh, I was going to say Chandler, to Marlowe. But the twist here is that Marlowe himself is also drunk now. And that's, that's something I've always asked myself with all these moment, times that like you know, marlo has been getting his subjects drunk, you know, all that stuff. Why isn't he getting drunk? Because he's drinking with them. And here we have that answer. Yes, Marlow is drunk as well. And there's a bit of a hint at, earlier in the film, too, where Mrs. Wade says,
6: my friend instead of your friend. when they're talking about Terry Lennox. So there's that little slip up there which kind of foreshadows what actually happens. And um, on the first viewing, you let it go and think, okay, well, she made a mistake then, and they did that to make the character sound like a real person. But um, on rewatching the film, you go, okay, well, they did do a bit of foreshadowing there, and they did it quite well and with a little bit of subtlety.
2: And it's keeping with her character. Uh, th- that's why she was – Nina Van Pallant was, was kind of perfect casting for that character because she needed this, like, bleach, you know, this bleach blonde, tan, sort of Southern California type, uh, you know, woman – to play a part like this because everything is kind of laid back, but there's that little kind of, you know, sub, you know, layer of passive aggressiveness, right? And everything that she says that's maintained throughout the film, like the moment where they're at, they're throwing the party and, you know, Wade has his like tantrum. He smashes the, the bottle and then, you know, the doctor takes him back and gives him the check. She's still in that same laid back kind of, but slightly passive aggressive. Okay, everybody. Well, sorry. The party's over. I guess, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that scene also has a bit where she's not acting very well
6: because it, when they're doing the kind of mid shot of Roger ranting and raving. There's a moment when you see Nina Van Pallant smiling at the way that that, uh, Sterling Hayden's acting. And then they cut to a close-up of her, and she's in a totally different emotional state than in that scene. So it's yeah, getting a non-professional actor has its pluses because you get that rawness, but it's also got its downside when you're kind of cutting between different shots.
2: I didn't notice that. That's funny. I'll have to seek that out the next time I see it. But I I like those moments. There's a little moment kind of like that, but I think it enhances a scene where – Gould is surrounded by Augustine's goons and they're all undressed, except for him. And he turns to look at one and, and he starts to crack up. And I wonder if that's Elliot Gould cracking up and not the character. Possible,
5: yeah. Yeah, she reminded me, Nina Van Pellant really m- reminded me with her character of uh, the Jennifer Warren character, Paula, from Night Moves, that kind of more... She's not necessarily beautiful, but she's a very h- handsome woman. I don't know exactly what the difference is in my mind, but she she's not a beauty but there's something earthy and real and pleasant about her and direct and i like that their dinner scene and then to go back to what you're saying earlier i really like that reveal of wade wading into the ocean is really nice that shot between them and the way that he comes up and is out of focus and going into the ocean it's really that's a very nice nice shot that's a
2: fantastic shot it's almost uh A reverse of of an earlier shot where wade and and his wife are having that conversation sort of an argument we see them having that argument and then we realize we see them through a window and then we see marlo's reflection you know sort of playing around on the beach on the window
5: yeah all those reflection shots i mean especially with that beach house and the the windows of that door wall uh, just remarkable stuff which was robert altman's house yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, um, he, he knows every angle of that place, which is useful. I think he walked around his own house with his fingers up doing a, a rectangle like that. So I am so excited to have an interview with Ellie Gould on this episode. Um I've been working at uh, having a proper interview with him since, I think, 2011 or 2012. I have actually been... Working on, and and I put working in quotes, I've been playing around with the idea of doing a book about Gould for a long time. My original idea was to do a book where it was all of the films that Elliot Gould was in in the 1970s on one side, and then you flip it over and it was all the films that Donald Sutherland did in the 1970s on the other, because these Two guys intersected their career their careers intersected at least three times during the nineteen seventies and you know, one of the biggest films of the nineteen seventies, MASH being one of them, and then Little Murders, which I really enjoyed, and then Spies, which is a kind of a questionable movie. Um but then just this look at their filmographies and just you know, separating it out separating out what Gould did, looking at the movies that he made in the nineteen seventies is just this roller coaster ride of interesting, sometimes bad, sometimes phenomenal. You look at something like the silent partner, compare that with something like whiffs or Matilda and so all these years ago, I thought about doing this and really tried to get it going. I actually talked with Gould. He was like, yeah, I would like if somebody wrote a book about me. You know, it would be great to have a biography. And so I went out and I talked to people that were involved with things like, um, you know, I talked to Peter Hyams about uh, busting in Capricorn one. I talked to Joe Walsh about California split, talked to all these different people, uh, about all these different films from the 1970s and then I managed to this was when I was unemployed for a little bit, and then I got a job and then i wasn't uh and then I also had this job of doing this podcast, so that kind of went on the back burner, but every once in a while I would reach out to Gould you know see like maybe we can still work on this together, so it was nice to finally be able to sit down with him and talk about this stuff and I have to say that this interview goes all over the place. we talk mostly about the long goodbye, but then I tried to get little information more about what led up to it. You know, we talked about how he's kind of in the wilderness for a little while between all of these films he did in 1970, 71, maybe even into 72. But then there was a real just work stoppage right in there, especially in 1972. we talk about that and we kind of, go around the mulberry bush a little bit with some of that stuff so i just want to warn people that this is kind of a, a meandering discussion but uh <laughs> hopefully people enjoy it so with all that in mind we're going to take a break play this interview with philip Marlowe himself ellie gould and we'll be back right after these brief messages mm-hmm.
0: In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast, looks back at that land of shadow and substance and reexamines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com dreams for
7: sale. We'll be waiting for you in the twilight zone. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, the projection booth. I'm here. However, to tell you about another movie loving podcast, the Shannon list picture show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself, talking about his friendship with John G. Appleson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google play stitcher radio, and of course, SoundCloud.
0: I'm Chris cooling from
5: forgotten TV, and you're listening to the projection booth, the ultimate movie podcast. The focus of the interview is the long goodbye. But I want to ask, uh, as far as like how you came to the role, and even going back a little bit before that, as far as your relationship with Robert Altman, if that's okay.
4: Well, uh, I had met Robert Altman at Twentieth Century Fox when uh, I was asked to meet him uh, uh, for uh, to talk about my participating in Mash, and uh, Bob gave me the script of Mash. I read it, and then. I came back to meet with him again, and he asked me uh, how I felt uh, about the part. How I felt about the part of Duke, the American Southerner, the part that Tom Skerritt played. And I said, uh, "I've never questioned an offer. Uh, you know, all I, w- I want to do is work. Uh, but uh, I'd be rather intense, being validating me as an American Southerner, I could do it. I have a musical ear." But this character of Trapper John uh, McIntyre—if you haven't cast him—I've got the juice, I've got the energy, and uh, for it—and uh, Bob, it's almost like he let me cast myself, and he, he gave me that part. That's uh, how and when I met Bob, and we did Mash, and it was uh, and he introduced me to Donald, who had been uh, a cast before me. And uh, Donald and I became very close. I didn't understand how Bob worked. I wasn't used to that kind of work, that kind of improvisational work. And uh, Donald and I, you know, were, had a problem about it and we uh, complained about it. But then Bob reshot a scene and we got on with it and it turned out to be a great collaboration. So is that I couldn't do uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, he had asked me to do that and of course it turned out great with Warren Beatty and Julie Christie. But uh, then I was, I had uh, fallen out of grace and was looking for work a few years after that. It all happened very quickly. I went up to United Artists. To meet David Picker, who was running uh, United Artists, he was a friend of mine, and he gave me Lee Brackett's script of the long goodbye, which was, of course, based on Raymond Chandler's uh, novel, and it was a, a you know sort of a, a pastiche. We thought another director was going to do it. I think that was Peter Bogdanovich at the time, and Peter Bogdanovich couldn't see me in the role. He had other thoughts. And uh, But then David Picker gave the script to Robert Altman, and Bob Altman called me from Ireland, where he was just uh, finishing the picture he did before this, Images with Susanna York. And Bob called me in New York City and said, what do you think about uh, Long Goodbye? And I said, I've always wanted to play this guy. And he said, uh, you are this guy. And that was uh, the beginning
5: of the picture. How familiar with the Chandler books were you before this? Because you've kind of become associated with Marlowe through all the audiobooks since then. That's
4: nice of you. I did, I think I may have recorded just about all of Raymond Chandler's books on tape, and even did Poodle Springs, uh, the book that he didn't uh, finish. Is I, 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 the guy's name Robert Parker? Was he the one who finished it? Uh, for me, it's uh, The Long Goodbye. That was, in a way, almost like my first picture, you know, I mean, where Bob gave me this opportunity to really uh, invent and and create a character who was way different than uh, how the character had been played before.
5: Had you been a big Chandler fan before that? I was a
4: great fan of the movies. It's funny, in in The Long Goodbye, when Bob let me uh, say, uh, you know, and improvise, Bob gave me so much uh, freedom when I say to the mummified guy in the the hospital room, uh, I've seen all your pictures too. Then subsequently, I I recorded the Chandler books on tape. I was a fan of the genre, but uh, I'm not uh, an intellectual.
5: What is that process once you get bracket script, once you are told you are the guy, how do you then approach the material and become Philip Marlowe and get to where we end up getting when it comes to the final product?
4: I live it. The first scene that we did is not even in the movie anymore. The first film, the shot that we did, we shot with the idea of uh, there being an office building and uh, lots of different private eyes had their offices there including Sam Spade and I would walk in and you know walked in that was the
0: first with Lucky Land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
1: dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time (gasps) no Lucky Land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case,
2: I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: Okay, and you, you see him wake up. I mean, he's sleeping in the beginning. I mean, he's like Rip Van Winkle. So uh, what, what, is the, what, what was the process Bob Altman gave me all of this room to be inventive based on what Lee Brackett wrote and what uh, Bob Altman, for instance, the, the first the first thing that he told me before we started to shoot was that the story it was about how he fed his cat. That you can't lie to a cat, and the very you know, in the scene where he's trying to uh, give the cat uh, some uh, cat food, but the cat is used to curry brand cat food. And uh Bob said that was the th- thematic as far as in nature, you can't lie to nature. Um, I'll see if I can be a little uh, clearer or more focused in terms of how we uh did it. And uh how we do it, which is we have a shooting schedule. we don't shoot in sequence. Bob said to me uh once we agreed that I would do this with him, uh, that uh there was only I should read the Chandler book, uh the Long Goodbye, and read something called Chandler on Chandler, which uh you know just had all kinds of information about. Uh, Raymond Chandler's creation of Philip Marlowe. Uh, he had done uh, the other private eyes, but uh, we're, we're talking the long goodbye and Philip Marlowe. Uh, so there are many different scenes in it where Bob and I work really closely. And sometimes, you know, Bob didn't necessarily know what I was going to do, but it's not a mystery. Uh, you know, we have a, uh, a shooting script we have a production schedule uh, and we have to be able to conform time-wise uh, to that and then Bob gave me all of this room to uh, spread my wings and to invent uh, and and to you know collab- collaborate and create with Bob uh, this character
5: by the time you got on to the project was there already that decision to place this in the early seventies, or was there ever talk of?
4: No, that was the present. The early seventies was the present, and that's a good thing that we can. It's now. It's now, and even uh, the sequel that we did a little bit of work on in later years, which uh, we we have not made, uh, is which is uh, based on a an earlier piece of work of Raymond Chandler's called The Curtain it's oh it's now, even though this is in the seventies when we shot it in the seventies it was now and now now is always now uh you know uh so uh if that makes any any sense, you have a character uh whose values have all but disappeared uh and wakes up and gets involved uh in this story and this and and the story then unfolds uh Uh, and, and, and Bob made this picture with me, which I'm so privileged
5: and grateful for. The old line is to never work with kids or animals, but then you had to end up working with this cat so much in the beginning. Who said that? It's just an old adage. I've heard of
4: no, I don't. No, no. I love, I love children and, and uh, animals. Yeah. I know W.C. Fields uh, felt that way. No, no, no. And, and there were two cats. I had a clicker, and there were two cats that looked alike. And as far as uh, film technique and uh, film science... Uh, I discovered in the fourth picture uh, and I had already no I hadn't made mash yet I hadn't participated I hadn't I hadn't even met Bob yet uh, but in the fourth picture uh, that I participated in but I think maybe it was uh, look like, at uh, the confession uh, uh the narrated minskies and then Bob and Carrie was the third picture I discovered my first objective relationship in existence in life and it was with a camera and I realized that the camera didn't give me problems; I gave me problems. The problems didn't manipulate me or, uh, uh, or, or in any way. It just reported what I was doing, and that really uh, was the first objective relationship. Otherwise, everything was I was, was totally subjective. I didn't know what anything meant. The camera really helped to save my life.
5: Well, when it comes to the camera, the camera in the long goodbye is always moving, and how was that worked Until
4: out? Until he pulls the trigger. Until the end, yeah. Uh, I I just recently watched Vilma Zygmunt do a uh, a YouTube uh there was on YouTube uh an interview and he talked about that. Uh, it's always moving, yeah. It's like life. I mean, we wouldn't be alive if we didn't move. I mean life is is moving through us all the time
5: how conscious of his camera did you have to be? I mean, when it came to the blocking and all that, because it feels so no, naturalistic. no, 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 no. I mean, uh, the one thing that I, I know,
4: I know, uh, is that nature makes no mistakes. And that was my choice as far as my own existence and, and taking the road, the nature, So, no, I mean, there are marks that we work with. It's a crew. It's a team of people. So, uh, you know, that, that, I I didn't ever have a problem uh, there. Uh, you know, not, not ever a problem.
5: The thing I always appreciated about Bob Altman's films was just the variety of people that would be in there. And I was curious as far as like, cause you had worked with like, um, you know, Fred the Hammer Williamson, well, a few times, but in MASH in particular and worked with non-professional actors. And in here, you also had like, uh, I can't remember if Jim Booten had done anything before this. And I,
4: No, Jim Bowden, Bowden hadn't. No, 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 not at all. He he was the pitch for the Yankees.
5: He was a natural, though. He was fantastic.
4: He was good as Terry Lennox, yeah.
5: How was it working with uh, him or, or, like, Nina Van Pallant? I don't think that she had been in a long time. Well, of
4: I, she was... A- She, I mean, Bob asked me to do her test, to test with her. And I I hadn't, wouldn't have thought of her for it. Uh, I thought it would uh, be a younger person, but I I knew that Bob knew what he was going for. It's his picture. So I did her test. And that's where I found uh, we were able for me to uh, put my wardrobe together. Those two, you know, a, a mismatched a blue jacket and pants, a white shirt and the tie, uh, which had little American flags on it.
5: And how was it going toe to toe with Sterling Hayden at that point?
4: Oh, perfect. once, Because originally Dan Blocker was cast to play Roger Wade. And Dan had been Bob Altman's friend and uh, when dan uh, died uh, we almost bob almost canceled the picture and then we didn't know um what we would do to to recast and then uh, bob uh decided uh, on sterling and i met sterling at the house that bob was living in which was the actual house that roger uh, wade uh, and, and Nina Van Palen's character uh, uh, were living in. And so I wanted to be a little alone with Sterling, uh, just in a room before we started to shoot, he had been in Ireland working with R. D. Lang, uh, who had written a book. I think he was uh, some some uh, person dealing with psychology or whatever his science uh, was. And the name of the book was Knots. But uh, I sat there with Sterling, and I knew that Sterling knew that I knew that Sterling knew that I knew that I he, I understood him I loved working with Sterling Hayden you know, he was great I I sometimes think about a category for the uh, Academy Awards uh for uh, performances that were not as recognized uh in their time uh, and certainly Sterling Hayden was uh, was great he was just great this was uh, before he did
5: uh, The Godfather that scene of you and him on the beach when you're just having a conversation and drinking the aquavit that is just amazing and was that on the page at all or were you guys just yes
4: Yes, and that too, where the camera is not only me moving, it's the making a circle around us, and we didn't even know how it could be edited, how we could edit it. But again, I mean, uh, we work so well uh, together. And, uh, what, you know, and, and it worked out, you know, it was just great. And one of the things that's interesting when they when they put the picture on a DVD, they have a picture of Philip Marlowe, uh, my, my Philip Marlowe walking out of the ocean there. And, and I never had a gun in my hand. I didn't have a gun in my hand until the end of the picture where I pulled the trigger. And they put a gun in my hand. It's there and all of these things. And, I mean, I don't want to live with any kind of resentment. I don't want to live with any kind of jaded discontentment. It is what it is. But there wasn't a gun in my hand. And I guess the people who were packaging the product uh, uh, put the gun in my hand for whatever reason they thought was their their reason. But that's their business. You know, the picture belongs to them. But, But we don't belong to them.
5: Well, it's interesting you say that because I know there was such emphasis placed on the advertising campaign and just the way that it it was kind of a misfire initially and then going to jack davis and having him do the second poster for it do you think that the poster affected things or was it just the timing or the locations where the film was being released
4: whoa the film opened at the grauman's chinese with an ad that was uh rather uh, stereotypical a uh, very flattering i mean part of me was saying oh great you know i mean i've got a smoking gun i've got uh, a cat uh you know on my shoulder but that's not what the picture was about and and when we opened charles Chaplin, who is the uh a very uh significant uh, film critic here in los angeles He almost buried the picture because there were people who were really angry and really uh, mm, upset that we had broken the mold of the character. Where I'm, I'm more of a jazz uh, player. I'm more of a doing it like a jazz artist. You know, somebody uh, waking up out of time and place, and uh, which is Bob Altman, and uh, so they down and then they reopened it in new york and i never really thought or knew what why why didn't they open it in new york to begin with and then they did the mad magazine thing which i thought was also a bit uh, extreme you know but i mean i'm again very uh gratified and grateful that the picture has uh, not only held up but is in certain in some places recognized as um something that's uh, somewhat unique.
5: I've read a lot of the notices from when it came out and one of the things that just kept coming back was Elliot Gould hasn't had a hit in a while. And that just looking at that Statement in 2018 just seems bizarre to me because you had been in so many movies in 1970, 71, and even, uh, yeah, 70 and 71.
4: No, I know exactly. I mean, I have this recall, you know. So, uh, I had been working with Ingmar Bergman prior to the long goodbye, but in between the touch. Seeing Ingmar Bergman picture and the long goodbye, I attempted to start my own picture, uh, uh for Warner Brothers. And, uh, uh I had a two picture deal and, uh, uh, the the second uh, picture was based on a book called uh, A New Life by Bernard Malamud, who wrote The Natural. But I was not able to make, and I started, and I mean I acted very unprofessionally, but I couldn't compromise. I thought I had earned the right uh, and the privilege. Uh, to uh, to be in charge I had already produced Little Murders uh, I, we had already uh, uh, done uh, uh, I think we had done everything you always wanted to know about sex but was afraid to ask with and for Woody Allen you'll notice uh, the production entity is Rollins, Jaffe, Brodsky and Gould my late ex-partner was Jack Brodsky and who knew David Rubin who wrote uh, the sex book but uh, I was went way too far and uh, I also didn't have the right director and I didn't know how to compromise and I had to find out for myself what would the consequences be because I knew what I wanted to do on that picture which was called uh, at the time it's not, it, it, what happened was that it, it evolved uh, into a what's up doc but like I said earlier Uh, no hard feelings i can't afford to have regrets i mean in terms of uh james joyce's quotas having said that a man of genius makes no mistakes his errors are volitional and are the portals to discovery i had to find out what this is all about it's all about time management and money and business and um i had also uh also, I mean, you know, so I certainly wasn't realist, realistic and I paid for it. I paid for it uh, dearly. But I've always been in good faith and, uh, not knowing that I didn't understand. Uh, this world, this business in this world. You know.
5: I guess it's just strange that you know you had been in The Touch in Little Mermaid.
4: Well, and Little Murders, not Little Mermaid. I don't know not where not Mermaid
5: came from. I Mermaid. know where
4: it all comes from, but uh, with The Touch, I mean, I recently read uh, something that said that Ingmar Bergman was quoted as having said that I was difficult to work with, and not only was that not true, but uh, he went on record on the Dick Cavett show because we expected me this was uh this this pre this is pre uh the long goodbye and uh you know and he said i'm I'm a a total team player and i have no uh ego in this i'm just one of us i don't care you know who anyone is and um so you know i mean that was because Bergman, the, the the one of the last things he said, and we talked again, uh, and I even saw him again, uh, Ingmar. Uh, he said to me uh, when, when I was finishing up work in uh, in Stockholm. He said, "When you direct, he said, and you will direct, he said, you mustn't act, and no matter who's doing it or who's done it, you'll know what I mean." Uh, and I thought. Do you, you, I don't know if you know what's going on in America, and this was this was in the seventies. But it's always it's like it's like the song "The Long Goodbye." You know, it happens every day. This was the only way I could get here, and I, I had no plans. I mean, my goodness, I mean, I, and I remember my my long term memory is really good, but then in terms of how I structure my as bob altman would say my verbiage uh my uh language to uh express it i i I can do better sometimes i think maybe do i want to teach a course someplace what am i going to teach you know what what would i teach stardom i thought that would be something good every like sly sly in the family stone everybody is a star
5: well, what was that experience like doing The Touch? I mean, working with Max von Sydow and B.B. And Anderson must have been just amazing.
4: And Ingmar Bergman and Sven Neukvist and the entire unit, the 18 people that he made his films with. You know, so I say when when Ingmar was quoted as saying that, but at this point, Ingmar's no longer living. So I couldn't but, uh, you know, say, Ingmar, I you know, you've been, you were so... uh uh, generous to me and so good to me uh and and you you chose me uh to play your part uh you know and uh, uh but i I mean so i wasn't difficult to work with, but uh, Mike, I was impossible to do business with, and the reason I was impossible to do business with uh is that i didn't understand myself and and all I care about is the family that's everything to me that's why i work that's uh what i i stay in the world to make a living for it. the family you know give them an opportunity to wake up uh you know and and so it would have been so irresponsible if i was doing business outside and uh, and not uh, and not understanding myself it's not about me You know, it's always about us. So a guy had done an article for Life magazine. His name was Richard Merriman, and he had done uh, an article on Charlie Chaplin, a major for Life. Uh, And then he also had done an article on uh, Larry Olivier. And uh, he, before I went over to work with Bergman, I I interviewed with him and he said to me, uh, take a pad and pencil. And I said, I hope I haven't talked with you prematurely. I'm not coming across because of your interview. I'm coming across to see if I can work with the best white actors in the universe, Max and B.B. Anderson and their their whole unit. And so when I finished, I said to Richard Merriman, is there time? Can I still uh, uh, contribute something? I have something I'd like to say now that I've done my assignment with uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman. He said, yeah. I said, well, I couldn't fully accept all the privileges that were given to me because I appeared to be so successful so early and so soon, and whether it was the uh, privilege of working with the outstanding director or writer or conductor or composer that I believe with all of my heart and soul, this is not political, that the great privilege, uh, Mike, is to be conceived born and know yourself and everything follows and 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 you know where we are in terms of politically and and ecologically uh in this world in terms of what's going on right now you talk about being in the present you know here we are uh what is today don't tell me don't tell me the 13th i think i let me make sure the third today is the 13th of of another November, uh, 2018. Yeah, that's a good one too. We made all that up, you know, so I'm looking forward to uh, Thanksgiving and I'm looking forward to, uh, going and seeing my grandson and meeting his girlfriend. And so it's, it's very moving, you know, but Bob Altman, what, when we were doing, uh, when Soderbergh, uh, cast me to do, uh, Ocean's 11. And then subsequently we did 12 and 13. And then I, they even put me into oceans eight but when we were doing oceans 11 uh and the, the night that we were setting up and telling the whole gang together what it was going to be now i'm looking at uh, uh looking at uh, my little scene i had with matt damon and, and and where i was then i don't like being tired you know and and uh and so i'm just ready i know what i'm i'm there to shoot this is uh, Ocean's Eleven and Steven Soderbergh, who's a friend, he came up to me and he said to me, the ink on the face, was that an improvisation? And I thought, what are you talking about? I mean, wh- I mean, I'm here, I'm, I'm getting prepared to do my scene with Matt Damon, and I hit my marks and that, and I said, oh, you mean you want me to wake up? What of oh, that, of uh, the ink on the, uh, and then he and I said at the same time, he being uh, Steven Cerberus, the long goodbye. I said, oh, yeah, I said, right, the ink on the face. Yes, that was an improvisation. I said, was that the behavior hey, acceptable to you. He said, yeah, but it was so unexpected. You know, it was such a surprise. I said, but that exhibited the kind of confidence and trust that Bob Altman had in me and vice versa. Because if I had stopped, if I had stopped, once I put the ink under my face and say, I got a big game when this uh, fascist Nazi-like policeman was uh, roughing me up. When we see the camera sees it through, uh, uh, through a two-way mirror, you you know, and that scene in the long goodbye, I said, if I had stopped, uh, and then I go into doing Al Jolson and doing, you know, uh, uh, I think Mammy or something like that. So, uh, you know, I said that would have cost us about, oh, 25 minutes of production time. And that's what it's about. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's about the management of time in relation to the resources that we have. So I took some enormous ch- chances. I didn't come here to be anyone, but the, the, the long goodbye. I'm just so, it moves me because I've also, I've done stuff. I mean, I, I I always. I mean, I I love what I do, and and I I remember, uh, on on uh, on the oceans movies, I became friendly with Casey Affleck, but I never never really uh, uh, met or talked with Benny, his his big brother Ben, who was the best friend. To, to Matt Damon. And so I decided to go to a party that Clooney was having for, uh, uh Argo because, uh, I, I was, I'm impressed. I was impressed with Ben Affleck's craft and I thought he'd be pleased, you know, and I was able to say, you know, I don't like being impressed because I'm so deeply into the work and so into the life of what we're doing, you know, but I was in, uh, impressed and I thought you'd be pleased to, to know it, not, not to be sound. It a little uh, pretentious or, uh, grandiose. I don't mean it that way. And so he was pleased and then he said to me I have a question for you after all the stuff you've done everything after all this time have you ever done anything that you were sorry you did afterwards I said that's a great question let me give it a moment my answer is no no it would be so disloyal there's so many people dependent on our work and with the crew and the team of people that we have to put together some things work some things don't work we live and we die we we, we we make it, yeah. And I told you uh, uh, the, the 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 quote of James Joyce. Yeah, no, li- life makes no mistakes.
5: It sounds like the experience that you had with a glimpse of tiger, actually might have made you a better person and made you more aware of the
4: difficulty. Whoa. Oh, my God. I didn't even say glimpse of Tiger. Oh, my God. A glimpse of Tiger. Oh, my goodness. I may have to write it because it was so, so crucial there. I mean, it's like when Bergman called me uh, because I said, you know, I can't say no to Ingmar Bergman. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, but so I'll read his piece and then see if he'll call me in the West Village. And then I can talk with him, you know, and, and so he called me, you know, and it's, I was something like, no, no, his voice was so deep and the hair on the back of my, of my neck stood up. It was like how I would uh, make a vibration, a sound uh, for a puppy or a dog or a baby or a child, you know, it was just like that. I said, okay, I'll come along. Uh, I'll do what you want me to do. And uh, that was some experience, you know. Uh, but uh, Bob Altman, when I showed Bob Altman, he was, and this is already, let me see. No, it's still, I don't think it was the Longer By, but this was post, post the Glimpse of Tiger. I mean, I'm, I'm, I can't, I couldn't get any work because I mean, you know, I paid for everything, by the way. I mean, uh, they, they, they paid for everything and they also had to have uh, people, uh, uh, you know, to have me checked out, uh, mentally and psychologically, you know. I mean, I I, know I I had no judgment and no perspective, but I was able to uh, get here to see for myself, oh, we don't matter. How good you wanna be? Oh my goodness gracious. The President of the United States didn't have time or a coat to go to pay uh, respects to all of our fallen soldiers from World War One. Give me a fucking break, will you? That experience is no good or bad. My, my, yeah, I mean, good or bad, That that experience, wow. I don't wanna be glib. Uh, or anything like that, yes, it gave me. But still, I didn't know, because when Bergman called me, I mean, I'm making, we didn't expect me. This was all about my first wife. Now, mind you, I started out before, but it was all about Barbara, you know? It's so interesting, you know? It's like uh, Jim Brolin, who's a nice guy, and in the movie that, uh, the second movie I did for Peter Himes, uh, Capricorn One, I save his life. And Brolin, uh, 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 Brolin said to me at, at the 40th screen, uh, anniversary of uh, Capricorn One, he said to me, uh, you're a better agent uh, for me than my own agent. And I, I said, do you, do you think that this is business to me? No, I'm devoted to my son and his mother. I don't care who anybody is. But we all have limitations. And and Bergman and Ingmar said to me, uh, uh, like very early on in the process of the film, of uh, filming The Touch, he said, you've gone beyond your limits, and you'll have to live more to understand what you've done. And at that moment, I was... Uh, 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 secure in playing him. He chose me to play him, you know, but I had no confidence in me and I didn't know I was this transparent. You see, you can see it all through here, you know, see it all. So let me see the experience of a glimpse of tiger. Oh my God, I would have made the picture. I mean, I know I was incapable and unwilling to compromise. And now if I were working with or teaching or doing something, you know, I would just say, once you get, to, you have to be able to compromise. You've got to be able to follow. Even if, uh, you don't agree, you know, there's no room for it, ego or vanity or anything like that. And I don't, you know, but again, the only way I could, and I, I'm not proud of it, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I find that, uh, a grain of pride, a grain of pride is good for the heart, but no more than that. It's blinding. And, you know, my director on A Glimpse of Tiger and I, I chose. Him was Tony Harvey, who had been Stanley Kubrick's editor on uh, Doctor Strangelove, and he wasn't the right director for me yet because I said to him, "I've got the crew. The crew's worked with me on the first picture that I produced. I mean, they're with me, let, and now I've got all of Ingmar's craft here. Let, let, give me five or eight minutes just to come down and to be there and get a sense of it, and then you take the whole thing over." But you're acting like the director before I come here. I don't want any I don't need any credit. I don't even need identity, but I need to be free. That why? Why? You know, I need to be free. And I said to David Beagleman, who was my agent, you know, who wound up killing himself, not over that. And he ran Columbia Pictures. I said, this picture can make itself. Can let me do it. Let me do it. The crew is with me. Let me do it. And and uh, we we couldn't let me do it. It's too bad. But it, it all turned out right. And then What's Up, Doc? Was uh, was a successful picture, very successful. And who knows what a Glimpse of Tiger might have been not, I don't know how good Herman Rauscher wrote it. And, um, a glimpse of tiger to me was the little prince and the print. I was the aviator in urban New York. Now it's always now. And, uh, Uh, And and Kim Darby uh, was
5: the girl. She was the prince. You worked with Mark Rydell as an actor in The Long Goodbye and then as a director in Harry and Walter Go to New York. And I'm curious, how was it to have him switch roles like that for you?
4: I don't think that. It's, for me, it's all one thing. Nate wasn't switching roles when he said something, told us about the Cowboys when he directed John Wayne and the Cowboys and he got off on John Wayne because John Wayne, you know, but still John Wayne. I mean, Mark Rydell, you know, Mark Rydell, uh, people do what they do. I mean, I'm kind of allergic to ego. When Ingmar Bergman took me to the movies one Sunday, and he showed me that, you know, we went to see a picture called Kess. It was about a boy and his trained falcon. And, uh, by Ken Loesch. And, um uh, and, and, and Ingmar said that told me that, that day that his masters of, uh, in terms of uh, cinema were Alfred Hitchcock for pure imagination and William Wyler who was a friend because he had directed a uh, funny girl and I knew Willie Wyler and Willie as an administrative, a uh, producer director. And then Ingmar told me, he said to me that, um, uh, um, uh, he, uh, the first time he went to the movies uh, as a younger person uh, uh, and he saw Mae West, he said he went home and and, and and masturbated immediately. Isn't that great? I wonder if I should uh, see about a book. A book has to be fun for me to do. I don't want to be exploitative and everybody does it. And I find it boring, but there's a lot to share, you know, but I
5: don't know. Those scenes of you and Mark Rydell are just those are some of my favorite bits, especially when he and his boys are uh, stripping down to their underwear. That is just, I, I, my jaw was on the floor. Both times he shows up, he does something that is outrageous with the Coke bottle. He's a
4: wonderful actor. I just saw him in Crime in the Streets with a young John Cassavetes, Mark Rydell. His name, his name was originally, I don't know his last name, but his first name is Morty. He's Morty. I don't know, I would think, I should think that Rydell wasn't his name. I could find out, because they asked me to meet him. I think he's uh, being, uh, you know, uh, uh, is uh, living at uh, uh, the actor's home or something, and he's quite well. He's he's well. But, uh, yeah, Mark Rydell's he's also a a very good uh, piano player.
5: Did you ever play an instrument?
4: No, I was a tap dancer.
5: That's right. Didn't you and Peter Himes take the same tap class?
4: I don't know, but uh, Peter Ives and I have become friends.
5: Did I read this right that they released the Long Goodbye in March and then they released Busting? Was that ready in time for the summer and then they re-released Long Goodbye in the
4: fall? I was making, I was making, uh, uh, participating in doing Busting when the Long Goodbye opened at the Grauman's Chinese, and then when it opened. But there's a really good chase scene in Busting. But Peter came to me, you know, because they had originally cast ron liebman who's a fabulous actor to play my partner and then i just had a sense of something because he he was uh, i was told he was having the prop department make uh, because i think he was a lefty make hand make his holster uh you know and i thought i don't know oh that that's the right guy for this part because Keneally, the character I played in that, was pushing things but I, I loved Ron Liebman and Ron Liebman said to me when I first met him all the way pretty far back when he was friendly with George Sherman who was the original stage director for Little Murders, the stage production that I did the first one that I, where I played uh, uh, Alfred uh, and, and Liebman said we don't need any more actors we need directors but um but so then I'm doing, uh, and so then, uh, David Picker, uh United artists, uh, did, uh, not only did the long goodbye, but did busting. And David Picker said, I said, I don't think you got the, the, have the right partner. And, and this is after, uh, this is post, a glimpse of Tiger, and I couldn't wait for me even to talk because I got I got into so much trouble. Oh my God! I, I, I probably should write it, but uh, he said when Ron Lieben played tennis with his eleven-year-old daughter, uh, that he would hit the ball back like a rocket at the kid and or the baby, and he said there's two actors this Peter Boyle and this Robert Blake. And I said, I love them both. But uh, Robert Blake is dangerous, and I'm, I'm interested in working with him. <laughs> What's so funny? What, uh, well, still, I mean, I know. I, I understand. I've just been asked to, to talk about working with Robert Blake. And, you know, I, I, I thought I, I'll only talk about the experience since uh I chose him. I mean, I couldn't cast him. They had to be able to okay it. But what Peter Himes came to see me because Blake, Blake is a really good actor. And, and so Peter came to see me one day at lunch in my trailer. And he, this was the first thing that Peter ever uh, directed busting the way he'd written before. And, but he said, as far as I know, and he, he said to me, if you fuck up my movie, I will throw acid in your eyes. And I thought, and he said, and then he said, and look at me in my eyes. So, you know, I'm serious. And I thought you've got no problem with me. If I've pushed it as far as you can handle it or you can control it, there's no problem. And then later on, I said to him, I want your apology because you're telling me that you would have taken away my ability to earn a living. This is all I do. You know, this is all I do, but I've got a lot of experience. I don't know. And now it, uh, at eighty, you know, I mean, uh, economics was not exactly a strong suit for me. It's a fascinating science, but we have this one life to live at a time. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and then Peter and I, he, he, you know, we 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 see one another for lunch occasionally, and then I did, I, of course, I did, uh, I did Capricorn One with him.
5: This question is a little far afield from. Um what we've been discussing, but it's kind of in the same timeline, which is, you did a a TV special called Out to Lunch with
4: uh, the Muppets. Oh, are you kidding? That's one of my favorite things. I play poker with a cookie monster.
5: Yeah, you worked with the Muppets a lot when it came to, you know, even having a cameo in the Muppet movie.
4: Oh, I know. Yeah, he was great. Jim Henson was great to me and Frank Oz. I mean, but Out to Lunch... That was amazing. I even sang on it. Joe Raposo wrote a song called Strange. And they, they, uh, I did it. And then, uh, I also danced, uh, with uh, Rita Marino in it. And, and you know who was in the chorus, in the group, because we did it, uh, a primetime, ABC, uh, the Muppet, the, uh, electric company, and the cheap. Children's Television Workshop. Oh, yeah. And uh, let me see. What's his name? A great uh, African-American uh, actor who was in it.
5: Was it Morgan Freeman?
4: Exactly right. He was, he's in it. And Judy Grobards, the wife of Bob Dish, Dishy, she's in it. But I did some nice dancing, uh, with, uh, uh, with Rita Moreno, but I got to play poker with the Cookie Monster. And then they used to do Saturday nights. I just uh, spoke with today. No, today I spoke with John Mulaney. He was lovely and he's so good. And, uh, but yesterday I spoke with Lauren Michaels and uh, cause I had done those, those uh, very early, uh, uh, Saturday night lives, you know? And so I thanked him for taking my call. Cause I have a, a project that I, I want him to look at that. I, I mentioned to John Mulaney today who can write it. And Lauren said, thank you. I said, what do you think? He said, no, you were there. You're partly responsible for how, well, we did, you know, cause the first season they use my first, the first channel to, uh, uh, as a representative show, and we we won an Emmy Award. But those were great experiences, you know.
5: Yeah, there was a while there where I think you were one of the most frequent guest hosts, like you and Steve Martin, I think, were neck and neck.
4: And probably maybe Buck Henry and also, uh, what's his name? But I, I don't compare. I love Steve Martin. Did you see the Steve Martin, Martin Short uh, special?
5: No, I haven't seen that. Is that recent?
4: Yeah, very. It's very good. Yeah, Martin Short did the uh, Mulaney, uh, t- uh series uh, that we did for Fox, where I, I play uh, John Mulaney's uh, neighbor and, uh, you know, Oscar. But uh, yeah, Martin Short is fabulous. And I love uh, Steve Martin
5: you talked a little bit about the sequel um to the long goodbye and i'm curious was that talked about way back in 74 because i know that no no no
4: no 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 in the course of my reading all of the all of chandler's stuff i, I, I discovered and i recorded it something called uh the curtain when it was it was not yet uh, uh philip marlowe it was john dalmas and you could see where the, this was very early, you could see where, uh, the big sleep came from, because there's a lot of it is similar, but the book character in it has a 10 year old son, and he's the killer, uh, and that really attracted me to it, and so, uh, I did a little bit of work, uh, uh with it and on it, and, uh, I got, uh, Alan Rudolph to write a first draft, but I never could uh, get any, because now it's, it's still the guy is much older you know I mean again I can't I can't I have no say in anything it's definitely worthwhile you know it's very worthwhile and and also for it to be the character and if it's still me and and my age but I still have uh, the heart the spirit and the mind for it and I haven't changed
5: it doesn't seem like you've slowed down at all. Just the amount of projects that you worked on in the seventies seems to be equal to the projects that you're working on lately. Like I'm, you know, I'll see like, oh yeah, uh, new episodes of, you know, doubt or these things coming up. And it's just like, wow, yeah, Elliot's still out there, still going straight.
4: Oh yeah, I'm out there. And now I don't know. I mean, I really don't know, you know, because again, in terms of not having made a business for myself and having broken out to see for myself how this business is run and where it's at. I guess I could have gone to school. I would teach a course in it. I can't have any regrets. I said to my wife, uh, Jenny, I said, uh, Uh, do you have any regrets? Now, Jenny married me three times. I'll be married to Jenny forever until she can do better. But Jenny is the mother of my sole daughter and my son, Sam. And that's Jason's uh, sister and brother, half sister and brother. I don't think in halves. And uh, also Jenny is the grandmother to my grandchildren, to Daisy and Henry. So, uh, I'm very grateful, so when I said to Jenny, do you have any regrets? She, in her way, said, oh yeah, don't you? And I thought, and I I said, no, no, I can't change anything. I've always meant well, and this is how we learn. You know, and I said, you know, my kids find that a little difficult regrets. I mean, I'm not in denial, you know, but what do you would you prefer for me to say? Oh, I should have done this or I could have done this or I would have done this. No, I, I, you know, this is this is this is uh my life and I'm still living it. And uh, I I say because philosophy is uh Is very uh, meaningful to me, and we all have our own. Hopefully, we should. And and my philosophy, and it's all related because I. I believe on a certain level, we're all the same. And uh I'm sure Philip Marlowe knows this. Uh, and he says, uh, I say, you know, that I believe there's nothing of value other than what we have to share. And that it's one thing to share goodness and accomplishment, it's another thing to share a problem. And once people are willing and capable of communicating directly like this, then we can see that no one of us can have a problem that one of us didn't have before.
5: It is almost an hour and I don't want to take up too much of your time. I could talk to you all night, but that is not I
4: would fair like to, to you. hear it at, at some point because I'm a little, it's, there's still, I have remnants of insecurity because so, so much, but now that I'm in a, at, at a level and at a place where I can't know that I'm going to be able to employ myself uh, uh, any, any longer. I can't know. Of that and I've got to. I think it would be the most honest uh, for me with myself and in relation to my family and where I'm at. You know, to just really be true. What I what I find what I find is that I've recently found that what's uh, true and what's real is not necessarily the same. And for me, what's true is life. Nature is true. What's real? Sometimes we invent it. And then there are business interests that build on it, and then it's difficult sometimes to find, like, there's nothing there. But we invented everything, but not nature. We didn't invent life. Okay, and now I have your number in case I need some help. Because as you could hear with my phones and how I mean, I, I, it makes me nervous. You know, I mean, for me to stay in one place and have to talk with anyone or with you, that's that's a little difficult. You know, since uh, some animal will come, some dinosaur will come and eat me.
5: <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time Though this has been wonderful and I, I hope we can do it again sometime, that would be great oh
4: my god, that's very optimistic thanks Mike, I, uh, I look forward to it if you follow through it will be great and sometime, maybe you know, not often, I mean I, I'm, I try not to be indulgent uh, ever, but you know just you can call and say hi, how you doing
5: We are back, and we're talking about The Long Goodbye. I wanted to touch real briefly on the interesting story of this movie. When it was released, it was only released in a few markets, including Detroit, I found out while I was doing my research. It was released in a few cities in March of 1973, and it bombed. It really was not very well liked, and I think all of the reasons why we talked about before as far as – it's a little obtuse. You can't necessarily follow it that well. Elliot Gould mumbles through this. Uh, this guy, you know, he drops the the MF, uh, you know, these kind of things. And then that that key, that coup de grace, which is what you talked about, Eric, that he shoots his best friend, and people really chafed under that. They did not think that this was Philip Marlowe whatsoever.
6: Yeah, I think they had a much investment in Bogart and Dick Powell, and possibly even James Garner. And so when Marlowe did something they didn't think was Marlowe, uh, if social media had been around then it would have gone crazy, but it's still been crazy anyway.
2: It's, it's funny how the you know, these films that we talk about that we, we, we consider to be great movies weren't that well received when they were first released, right? And it makes me wonder, well, will we like look back at something like, you know, Armageddon and say, Oh, you know what? I was wrong about that. That film is brilliant. But no, uh, in terms of Long Goodbye, I could see why people had a problem with it. If I recall, I mean, I wasn't around when, when, when Long Goodbye came out, but I mean, I, I remember seeing archived marketing materials to try to play it up like a comedy where it was, where the posters look like a Mad Magazine cover or something like that. Do you know if the marketing harmed the film at all, uh, Mike or, because i could i could see why people had issues with the idea of taking like
5: an iconic character and just basically seemingly pissing on it well, that was the thing, was when it was first released, it was released with the poster image that, strangely enough, is on the Kino and the Arrow discs, which is the one of him with the gun, and it's kind of blue, and it's like nothing says goodbye, like a bullet. And there are some versions that have that with a cat on his shoulder, these kind of things. And so that was the original advertising campaign, and they... Ended up when they pulled the movie, they pulled that campaign. And the Mad Magazine, the Jack Davis stuff, was actually the second version of it. So when they re-released it in October of 1973, that's when they had the Mad Magazine thing. I think the pendulum swung a little too far, personally. The Mad Magazine version is the one I was familiar with from like the VHS cover, those kind of things. Uh And I find it interesting that it's not the one that's on the... DVDs or the Blu-rays that are released now. But yeah, they went the other way and tried to play up the more comic elements of it, which I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it fits more with that first poster image, but they had to do something to say as they would say in today's parlance, this isn't your dad's Philip Marlowe. The movie Marlowe starring James Gardner,
2: There's some goofy moments in yeah, that.
5: Yeah, the, the death of uh, Bruce Lee,
2: Bruce Lee and stuff like that, it's, it's got, like, a, its tongue in its cheek, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you've had, I would say, the earliest attempt at sort of neo-noir might have been uh, Harper, the film starring Paul Newman. But I, the only thing I could think of that might have, like, I, I could see where, where like, fans might have been jarred by, their represent, by the representation of, of their favorite character might have been, like, Kiss Me Deadly. Where they take the Mike Hammer character and they make him an utter asshole. No apologies. It's it's meant to be an anti-hardboiled uh, private detective private detective movie, um, which I adore. I love that movie too. But I know that that Mickey Spillane absolutely hated that film. Like hated it. And I can imagine why some people. You know, the old school film critics might have been turned off by the long goodbye because how dare you, you piss on, you know, this long tradition of noir and, you know, Philip Marlowe and the great, the big sleep and stuff like that. Because this is one of the earliest takes on that, on that kind of thing. No one had really seen anything like that before. With the exception of maybe, I don't know, you had like things that were outright parodies that were obvious parodies. But they didn't come out till later than that. Like, what was the film we discussed uh, during the Maltese Falcon, Mike? The one with like George Segal, The Big Bird, or the Oh, the The
5: Blackbird.
2: The Blackbird, right? You know, or, or uh you know, Murder by Death, or something like that. You know, this film is is funny. It's a parody in parts. It's also a satire. But there's moments that are like deadly serious.
6: There, I think Harper leads into this movie nicely, because Lou Harper is an ambiguous character and a kind of reinvention of the private eye for a later age. And by the way, it was uh, written by William Goldman, who just died. Yeah. So we should do a shout-out about about that. But, uh, yeah, I think that they were kind of deconstructing that that genre as far back as the kind of mid-1960, 66 when Harper came out. This movie is a continuation of that process until it got to the silly stuff like The Cheap Detective with Peter Falk, which I love for all the wrong reasons. But um, yeah, I think that that process started well before this film.
2: Oh, I agree with you, but I think that what makes this film different is is the tone and the the, the almost sacrilegious thing to cast someone like Elliot Gould and not someone like Steve McQueen in that part. Because with something like Harper, it was Paul Newman. Uh, Marlowe was jim garner you know it was like that you could see those guys in 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 a part of a hard private eye maybe or because they're leading men types whereas elliot gould was this quirky guy
6: yeah absolutely and uh the weird thing about harper too of course is that everybody else in the movie is great except paul newman but yeah but elliot gould wouldn't be your first choice for philip Marlowe under any circumstances
2: i'm sorry i thought newman was great in that i'm a big fan of the movie harper Oh, I love the movie. I just don't
5: like him mugging all the time. But uh by the way, the actual character is Archer, but that's another thing. I haven't seen the movie, so, or The Drowning Pool, so I can't give my opinion whatsoever. Drowning Pool, not so good. No, definitely not. I tried like crazy to find the TV version of The Long Goodbye that was done on Climax. I think it was, was it NBC that did Climax, but the old TV show, which some of those episodes have been preserved and you can find them like the original um, adaptation of Casino Royale with uh, Peter Lorre, those kind of things. With Jimmy Bond. Yeah, Jimmy Bond. I can't find Dick Powell revising his role or revisiting his role as uh, Philip Marlowe in The Long Goodbye*, taking that story and boiling it down to an hour. And that's the thing I'm just so curious about. How could you boil this movie down to an hour, this book down to an hour? Because it is already tough enough to bring it down to an hour and a half, two hours. So I'd be very curious about that. And I want to know why people know this story about the person who plays a corpse getting up and walking off on live TV, that is part and parcel. When you look up Climax, the long goodbye, whatever the date was, that story comes with that every single time. It's like, okay, well, somebody obviously has seen that and told that story, but I haven't seen it, and I really would love to see that. So, I mean, that's that's harder to find than that Marlowe 2007 TV pilot, which is just like you know you, you 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 Google that and it's right out there on YouTube. Yeah, which is terrible. Who was he?
2: Uh, I don't know the actor's name, but he was in the American version of Life on Mars. Jason O'Mara, I think it was. Yeah, O'Mara is his last name. I can't remember his first name, but he plays Philip Marlowe in that. And it's 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 not even like it's just a character who happens to be called Philip Marlowe, who has to be a private detective.
5: I think that was my boy Rob Bowman directing that one,
2: too.
6: Yeah, I mean, there were there were other adaptations, like that. there was Banyan, I think it was, with um the guy that was in Medium Cool, uh, Robert Forster. There were TV series that did it better than a lot of some of the movies about that kind of thing. So there were kind of 1940s private eyes. I thought James Gardner was a better Marlowe in the Rockford Files than he was in the movie Marlowe. Yeah, I mean, Jim Rockford was a, a man of his time, but he had that same moral code.
5: I found it interesting that in the Lee Brackett screenplay, the 1972 version of the screenplay, he is constantly listening to his messages, which kind of reminds me both of Jim Rockford and also going back to that Mike Hammer from Kiss Me Deadly, who had one of the first answering machines that we ever saw, this huge reel-to-reel player on his wall. But, yeah, he's constantly listening to his messages. So Marlo has an office in that version, in in that lead bracket version, which he doesn't seem to have an office in – the Altman film. And when he goes to that office in the Lee Bracket script, he'll listen and it's always creditors trying to get money out of him, which really plays up the idea of him being on the skids. And we kind of get that more from the uh, wardrobe and the living conditions that he's in versus actually having creditors calling and those kind of things when it comes to the final version. The other thing I found interesting in the bracket script was that Eileen, she did end up killing Sylvia, so she killed the wife that Terry killed in the movie, and Marlo basically just has to ask her multiple times, and then she finally confesses, and it was just this kind of like Oh, well, that, that was kind of strange. And so he kind of does the same thing when it comes to was your su- husband sleeping with Sylvia Lennox in the movie and she finally admits it. But then I like, the, again, the way that it was undercut by the cops are like, yeah, we already know that. And that doesn't play any role when it comes to who actually killed Sylvia Lennox other than now Marlowe thinks, oh, yeah, for sure. It must have been Roger that killed her. And it can't be my buddy, Terry.
6: He's got that enormous blind spot and that kind of of makes him a sympathetic character in the end even after he shot him and even after you've got that um him dancing with the old lady at the end of it and all that kind of thing it actually makes it as sympathetic to Marlowe in spite of that action i kind of like that
5: i was just looking at some of my highlights from the um reviews in the movie, and some of the stuff I wrote down was based feebly on the Philip Marlowe detection character. Mr. Altman has been a study in the protracted scene, the heavy-handed play, and the rather repulsive cinematic gratuity. So, yeah, people didn't necessarily uh, like this one that often. Take a look at Roger Ebert's
6: review, where he says that Eileen um, Way is stretched, which I didn't get from the movie, but uh, apparently it had a big effect on Roger but
2: roger ebert is an example of some critics that went back and revisited the film and came away with a much more positive review because initially ebert gave it like a three-star review and his latest review which you can read on his website gives it four stars he he raves about it yeah i'm I'm curious as to because i know pauline kale who was you know always like she she must have had a huge crush on roger robert altman right i mean she she loved everything he did but but she she you know would raved about the film and um you know i don't know if, if vincent camby ever came back rewatched it and changed his mind either but a lot of the a lot of the critics had since revisited it and rethought what they originally thought about the whole thing
6: i think we all did that during standard and when i first saw say last thing of in paris I cried because it was so sad, and then I saw it this time and realized that the Marlon Brando character was another prick all the way through it. Um, we we do change the way we view movies, and, and kind of revisiting them like that can be really educational, if nothing else.
5: Here's a good quote from the New American from uh, April 6th, 1973, by uh, Walter F. Herman under the headline, Long Goodbye, R is Rotten. If he could just take that lousy cigarette out of his mouth for five lousy seconds, you could understand his audio better and not have to recommend him to the Cancer Society's Sad Sack Division.
2: There's even a scene in there where he's got the cigarette in his mouth and it's not lit.
5: Have you guys, did you have a chance to watch the Japanese miniseries that was based on The Long Goodbye? I
2: have not, and I'm sorry I haven't.
5: I will tell you if you want something that is more faithful if you really have your panties in a bunch, that this was not a faithful adaptation, that the Japanese miniseries that was, I think it was 2014, they did a really good job. Now, it is transplanted from America in the 1950s to Japan in the 1950s, which is kind of fitting because there's a lot of post-war stuff that is going on uh, in the book. There's gangsters in Japan, just like there's gangsters in the United States, you know, we've got the the, the the parallels there, and yeah, it's really interesting the way that they transport this over to Japan and then make it fit very well. If anything, the convolutions of the book are also in the miniseries, which is, I think it's five hours long, so you get a lot more of this kind of stuff and you get those side characters you get more about you know the sisters and all these kind of things so i would say that if you want a more faithful adaptation definitely check that out it is out there it is there's a fan subbed version that is available the subtitles are a little rough cuz they run off the size of the screen sometimes it could be formatted a little bit better but i'm not going to be a uh, a dick about somebody fan subbing something because I couldn't speak Japanese to save my life. So it was really kind of a nice take on that. And they don't do the thing where Philip Marlowe's name is like the kanji version of Philip Marlowe or whatever. Um and it's interesting the the Roger Wade type character. He's almost like a Eduardo Rampo type character. He writes the Euroguru uh fiction and uh so it's more the pulpy kind of stuff. So it's it's interesting when it comes to that. And I did find that interesting the way that Roger Wade in the book is almost a stand-in for Chandler and the way that he will talk about writing and that he writes in the same method that Chandler did when it came to uh, using these yellow pieces of paper to type onto and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's the most self-aware of Chandler's books, having this writer character in there. But again, it's a little self-indulgent. And yeah, I'll cut him some slack since his first wife was – was dying or second wife. I can't remember. Yeah. Second wife was dying, but at the same time, it's like, it felt like he was really struggling to bring pulp out of the gutter to bring detective fiction out of the gutter. But for me, it's never been in the gutter. And sometimes I kind of like the gutter better than I like the lofty stuff.
2: I've always admired Chandler more than I liked him. The big sleep is pretty well written, but I, I get annoyed at how he just doesn't seem to care about plot. You know, you can do both, you can have great characterizations, but you could also have a good solid plot, you know, and things like that. I I, I think I prefer his short stories to his novels. But when we talk about like the two writers are considered kings of this genre, Marlowe, uh, Hammett, I've always preferred Hammett.
6: Yeah, I mean I like Chandler for his turn of phrase. But uh I definitely think that Hammett was superior as far as plotting and for giving us so a lived in feeling.
5: Alright, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
0: Here's to both of
3: you. May you pay your rent on the first. <sighs>
2: What's he do in this neighborhood?
1: Let's see if you remember how to operate a $90 loan job. Last one undressed gets their navel kissed from the inside.
0: I really believed I was helpless.
7: Like some kind of... A pet. And we'll put the Donny Osmond poster over there. My tongue will tell the anger of my heart. Or else my heart concealing it will break.
3: Oh, now you're not going to play hard to get are you. Yep. Yes, dear. And how old are you?
0: Well, I just turned 25 last week.
3: Oh, I'm really sorry. You're much too old for the part. Oh, well. Dance? Hell, you ever hear of Martha Graham? What the? Hey, Richard, baby.
0: Okay. I'm out of trouble. I can't take these.
3: Come on, speculate. I
0: hear. Okay. Oh.
3: Ah! Oh, you're my little girl, don't you? Call an ambulance. Quick. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. With you, it's not another love affair A day of empty.
5: We'll be back next week with a discussion of Chuck Vincent's roommates, where I'll be joined by Ashley West and Heather Drain. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts on this epic Chandler journey, Eric and Terry. So, Eric, what is the latest with you, sir?
2: Preparing for Thanksgiving, I'm smoking a turkey. Very excited about that. Uh, in the meantime, I'm working on my... Little project, which I shall premiere on Medium, a new blog, uh, focusing sort of doing what I do with film, but with the current state of media, particularly with this current political environment. So that's my latest thing. So it's been taking me a while to organize it because the news keeps changing every day here. And I keep having to re-change, have to keep changing up what, what it is that I want to talk about and all that stuff. But that's going to be my next project. I don't have a name for it yet, but an announcement will be
5: forthcoming. Are you going to hire a female intern so you can karate chop her arm and take a microphone away from her? And then I get to sue the White House. Sure. And how about you, Terry?
6: Well, um, I'm actually going to an anime-themed cafe soon for my wife's birthday next week. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, It's going to be a lot of fun with a lot of weird food and a lot of weird decorations. But I'm also re-watching The Other Side of the Wind for my podcast because I'm going to do an episode about it. And I want to do it justice. I, I think it's interesting. I think they put it together beautifully, and it's in some ways the most striking of Awesome World's later films.
5: Yeah, I need to watch that one a second time, and I think I'm going to do the same, put together an episode about that. So trying to get a hold of some of the people that were behind this recent release, and uh, yeah, that should be a lot of fun to talk about that movie. It's not often you get to talk about New Awesome Worlds, maybe. Well, thank you again so much, guys, for being on this show and for being on the other two Chandler-themed shows. I really appreciate it. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
3: Every day, when some passerby invites your eye to come her way, even as she smiles a quick hello, you let her go, you let the moment fly. Too late, you turn your head, you know you said the long goodbye. Can you recognize the theme on some other street? Two people meet as in a dream, running for a plane through the rain. If the heart is quicker than the eye, they could be lovers until they die. To try <laughs> when. I- Recognize the thing On some other street Two people meet As in a dream Running for a plane through the rain If the heart is quicker than the eye They could be lovers Until they die To try Ooh, when i Miss hello he comes along. Don't you try to be nice to me now, I'm leaving and it's goodbye. I ain't running after you in the rain when you're catching a plane no more. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'm through, I'm through this time and I mean it. In fact, I don't know if I ever even did like you, except for your body. Your body was good. Well, let's say so long.